VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, January the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air. The topic is up to you, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, obviously, big thanks to Tim Powers for sitting in, me, in for me for a couple of days, but I'm glad to be back in the saddle. All right, let's go. So... You hear Noah Shepard during the VOCM News talk about the fact that it's nice and mild out there today, but with a couple of low-pressure systems incoming, that's going to change. And it was on this date three years ago that we woke up and peered out our windows and doors to see the aftermath of the massive snowstorm that people refer to as Snowmageddon. So the city in the area was crippled. Eight days were the state of emergency. And, you know, I remember back then when we'd get some notes from elsewhere in the province saying, my God, the town is overreact to everything. <laughs> and in some form, that's kind of true. But in this case, that Snowmageddon event was unbelievable. You know, we wonder where we are when the, the post-mortem meetings would have taken place between the various municipalities. And, yes, the private sector, because the, the munis, they had to use equipment and personnel from some private sector companies to try to get the place cleaned up as quick as possible. And it was a massive task. But anyway, here we are three years later. And you would have thought that year, that would have been the headline that grabbed all the big coverage. That would have been the news story of the year until, of course, March rolled around. And it's been a long time since we've seen and heard about the presence of COVID here in the province and the country, we've learned a lot. Time flies, but a lot has changed, to say the very least. Okay, you want to talk about it? Let's go. You know, there's always going to be fun conversations and debates about who are the greatest athletes of all time. One name that remains in the conversation all of these decades and over a century later is Jim Thorpe. It was 40 years ago today, on this date in 1983, that the, Olymp- the International Olympic Committee posthumously restored Jim, Jim Thorpe's Olympic medals. And that was 70-odd years after he had pounded everyone at the Stockholm Games in 1912. So he played some semi-pro baseball and earned an absolute pittance. And because of that, that was back in the day when it was all traditional uh, athletes that were non-professionals. So they, the amateurs ruled the roost, and he earned a few coppers playing semi-pro ball and lost all his medals. So, you know, he entered and he won the gold medal in the pentathlon and the decathlon. At the start of the Stockholm Games in 1912, Jim Thorpe had never once in his life thrown a javelin or pole vaulted Yet he finished third and fourth respectively in those events, respectively in those events. During the 1,500-meter race, crushed the field. The time that he's put up that day, it stood for over 60 years. So Jim Thorpe gets his medals back posthumously today in 1983. One of the greatest of all time? Sure. Uh, massive congratulations to Holly O'Neill, local soccer, local soccer player, Maltung Tiger. She's a product of the St. John's Minor Soccer Association. She went on to have an awesome career, career at Memorial University playing for the Seahawks, played some semi-pro ball in Ontario, and now she has signed a professional contract to travel to and play in Iceland. So, I mean, imagine waking up and all of a sudden you're able to call yourself a professional athlete. Cool, no matter how you slice it. And Iceland, of course, is a stepping stone to other major leagues, whether it be in England, which is a lot of Canadians hope is to get to play professionally in England. So congratulations to Holly. Go get him. In a couple of weeks, she makes her way to Iceland. Cool stuff. Home of the thunderclap. All right. This is a really fabulous story that I read on the Steve this morning about a young fellow named Mark Conley. 
Mark, we're up here in the city of St. John's. A stone's throw from Kitty Vitti, of course, where the Royal St. John's Regatta has been competed for for in excess of 200 years. So he was going to Memorial University, and his parents talked him into finishing his program at Mun, but he saw an ad for a Nike shoe design. So all of a sudden, that grabs his attention. And lo and behold now, he's working in Edinburgh at a design company called Rival Kit. So they actually uh, develop and sell these technically uh, advanced athletic gear. They actually clothe some of the world's top rowing crews, including Oxford, Yale, Harvard. They also put the clothes on the back of some folks who are competing as professional cyclists and rugby teams. And Mark Connolly living the dream as a designer with a real, apparently up-and-coming company, but that's pretty cool stuff. Grew up around Kitty Vitty, and now you're putting the gear on the backs of the folks rowing for Oxford. Okay, here we go. So apparently I missed a lot of conversations regarding, you never know what the hot topic is going to be, right? And this is hyper-towny, but I think this conversation regarding nuisance neighbors it gets extended to municipalities right across the province. And so maybe this is a stepping stone to look for more and more opportunity to clamp down on those who have potentially nefarious motivations for being a nuisance neighbor. And as the old adage goes, there's no better neighbor than a tall fence. So this, of course, is about Bright Lights Big City. The Outer Battery. Okay. So if you've ever seen the lights, you know they're extraordinary. The question always needs to be asked, what's the motivation for these unbelievably bright security lights? The thought in the Outer Battery is someone who'd like to buy up more and more properties is just trying to chase you off because of the frustration brought to bear because of these lights. Now, there was a motion brought forward at St. John's City Council to deal with this particular issue and it was voted against by every single member of council other than Deputy Mayor Sheila O'Leary. All right, so the argument made by including Mayor Danny Breen, and yes, the ward councillor, Ophelia Ravencroft, for ward number two, the, that's the ward where the outer battery is, say that even if there was amendments made, the lag between city council's approach and the province amending the City of St. John's Act could take six to 12 months and wouldn't be able to deal with the bright lights that are currently installed. And since that vote took place on Monday, there's been another set of bright lights installed down the outer battery. Questions are many. So whether or not the city can do anything or they simply won't do anything, which I think is a fair question, because if the city was able to be nimble enough to put amendments into the act to deal with restrictions regarding personal fireworks, then if you can do that, why can't you do this? Now, it might not be the biggest issue in the world if you don't live in the outer battery, but the residents there are duly frustrated, angered, and now at a bunch of different angles, mad with the city, and sure, even MHA John Abbott, cabinet minister, member of the House of Assembly that represents the folks in the outer battery, you know, talking about the ability for the province to do what they need to do in short order so that something can be done. And so even if you can't deal with lights that are already installed, now you're just going to give the opportunity for whether it be this one fellow or anybody else to implement these types of tactics to pester, and some people use the word terrorize, the residents in close proximity to where they live. So if you can do it for fireworks, why can't you do it for these lights? All right. So, you know, with the newly installed set of lights, you know, remember, it's not that long ago there was a backyard rink where Newfoundland Power got involved as to whether or not they were being properly metered, whether or not an extension cord being run was up to code, all of those types of things. Maybe just go down and have a look at that, just to make sure we're in good stead. So, even if you know the thought is, well, we'll have to leave it up to the neighbors and the neighborhood to figure this out. 
That sounds ridiculously naive to me. There doesn't look like there's any sort of neighborly off-ramp available at this moment in time. The interactions between all involved are becoming quite testy. There has been some pretty explicit language used in these altercations. There is some threatening language being thrown around. I wonder how this ends. Because, look, I get it. If you're listening from the west coast of the island or up in Labrador this morning, you're like, who cares about that? But these are the types of issues that become larger than just the outer battery and these bright lights. So, I don't know. How does it, how does this kind of come to some sort of compromise or solution if left up to the residents? It does not seem like it's available. Then there's the, lit- the litigious nature of the gentleman who installed the lights. You know, the thought out there is that maybe the city is wary of a prolonged legal action if and when they do something about these lights. But, I mean... These types of problems rear their ugly head in many municipalities on a variety of different fronts. Like if we can clamp down, if you've got Sanford and Sons activity in your front or backyard to clean the place up, if we can implement amendments regarding the usage of personal fireworks, then it does beg the question is whether or not the city can, should, will, or simply won't or refuse to do anything about this. So anyway, you want to take it on, we can do it. And of course, you know, don't take my word for it that it might escalate. When there's a chainsaw revving at 10.30 in the evening and there's some renovations done to the twine loft, then, I don't know, we're heading in a pretty stupid direction here on this one. But anyway, apparently I've been warned not to say anything about it because I'm afraid to be sued. No, we're asking about city inactivity or inability. We're asking about the motivation for the lights in the first place. We're asking as to where anybody thinks this ends. And I, I, like many, have a bad feeling this ends with another headline that will be more grim than a bright light being shone in to interrupt your sleep patterns and just to frustrate you down in that neighborhood. So whether you be the fellow who's installing the first set of lights, the second set of lights, and or anyone in the area or around the province who want to talk about the municipality's need and want to clamp down on certain things. And, of course, it does bring more questions about you know, what actually constitutes a nuisance? What constitutes the, necess- the necessity for a municipality to get involved as opposed to neighbors working it out? Neighbors working it out is, you know, it all sounds very utopian and very mature, but unfortunately, it probably doesn't happen as often as people would hope it would. So anyway, you want to take it on? Let's go. And the, the issues are up to you. I see the folks at the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association, the NLTA, Shining a light, not only we talk about recruitment and retention in the healthcare system, but also in schools. So there's a shortage of substitute teachers. That much I know. I have a bunch of buddies who are educators, some in admin, some who are teachers in the classroom. So they've got a shortage there. There's a shortage of guidance counselors, reading specialists, uh, itinerant teachers, instructional resource teachers, that is. So, you know, we see what it means in the world of healthcare. We understand how those headlines would be worrisome to folks right around the province. I don't think we see things happen quite as quickly, nor are the outcomes quite as dire as dying. But we've seen the fits and starts and the ups and the downs and the complexities of delivering education in the K-12 system for years now. So shortages will, re- will be reflected in reduced service, but you don't see the immediacy of that concern for the individual, for their parents or caregivers and their buddies. But it's a big one because our long-term viability and prosperity absolutely lies in the quality of the education. And there's lots of good educators. No one's insinuating anything like that, that there's not. But shortages, you know, you get that old tumbleweed 
that starts to roll throughout the year. And the next thing you know, we've got years that have been interrupted by pandemic protocols, and this is still ongoing inside the system, so you want to take it on. We can do it and stick with education. The folks uh, represented by the Faculty Association at Memorial University, some 800 strong, they're starting already this morning, began at 8 o'clock, voting until 8 o'clock this evening, about the potential for a strike. It looks like there's going to be overwhelming support for a strike, and of course, the most of it is about pay, looking for 8% retro back to the beginning of the school year, the fall semester being September. The university says they've got 2% as based on what is the province's contribution to pay at Memorial University, so looks like we're going to see some potential job action there. My question, on top of a variety of other questions, would be, what happens to the students? Yeah. So if I'm impacted in part or in full, do I get a refund for this year's tuition that I've already paid? I think there's got to be a lot of those questions thrown around, and we'll happily take them on. How are we doing out there, David? Oh, all right, a couple of quick ones. So the good folks at Food First NL and the community uh, helpline that they put in regarding food and access to food, it's going away by the end of March. They just don't have the the secure long-term funding, and the wait list is extraordinary. So the Community f uh, Food Helpline, back at the beginning of the pandemic in early 2022, it's helped some 11,000 people from more than 80 communities since it was put in place. So they added a warm line soon after. There was gift cards, meals, hamper deliveries, taxi chits, all added to the service. And now because the lack of dedicated long-term funding, it's going away. Even their wait list, uh, a return call may take up to seven weeks. And this is not any sort of crack at the Josh Mees and the staff at Food for, Food for SNL. They do incredible work for the community. But if you don't have the money, it's hard to make the world go around on that front. But that critically important component for food and access to food going away. And knowing that the usage at food banks is just forecasted to rise again this year right across the province, there's now going to be a benefit concert. Uh, to benefit the Community Food Sharing Association and the 56 food banks that they represent. One of the quotes coming from our good buddy down to Bridges to Hope, that's Jody Williams. They expect food bank usage to go up about 30% th this year, right across the country. So inside his operation, that equals or equates to about $70,000 in additional need. And then he points to the fact that the two largest demographics that are growing for people coming in the door, children and seniors. So Bridges to Hope has partnered up with Music Canel. They're going to have a benefit concert to raise money for the food bank. It's going to be at the Garra Street United Church on the 16th of March. Some big names involved. Bravo to everyone who's going to uh, participate and buy a ticket. So Alan Doyle, Rachel Cousins, Kelly McMichael, Nick Earl. That's just the initial lineup at this moment in time. So that's a good one. Arts community always step up to do what they need to do. And last comment on food before we keep going. There is set to be a grocery code of conduct brought to bear across the country soon. And what this is, is a, an, an effort, a more transparent relationship between the retailers and the producers. So the big retailers, of course, when you're big, you've got certain advantage over the medium or the small. So they will ask for all, the entirety of your, uh, your stock of one product or another, or they need an increase in product. And what that means is that there's going to be smaller stores with little to zero supply of some products. So we've got this problem on a variety of fronts in this country. You know, telecom comes to mind. 
But this lack of uh, the ability for the small guy, because not everyone has access to one of the big major retailers and the big superstores and the big grocery stores that you can be familiar with, say, for instance, shopping in larger centers, but that's coming to the country hopefully sooner than later because, you know, anything we can do to encourage more and more competition, hopefully in an effort to control pricing, would be a good thing. I see uh, Tony Wakem, the PC member for Seaville Port of Port, has thrown his hat in the ring officially to be the next leader of the PC party of Newfoundland and Labrador. David Brazel bowed out uh, last week. We know that Lloyd Parrott, the member for Terra Nova, he's been in the race for quite a long time. This is the second kick at it for Mr. Wakem. He lost narrowly to Chess Crosby back in 2018. And, of course, he'll highlight things like recruitment and retention and focus on local students in any healthcare discipline st- uh, school here in the province and, of course, Fairball. And then the sugar tax, which he's long been an opponent of. Some of the things on top of his list. But, Mr. Wakeham, in, you want to comment on that? You know what to do. Okay, uh, the PUB. So, <laughs> the PUB. You know, we were all up in arms when the PUB was axed out of the process to help adjudicate what should be the prices associated with hydropower. And that was all, all of course, inside the world of Bill 1661. And, of course, one of them with regarding wind power has been done away with, and we can talk about wind if you're into it. So there's going to be a three-phase process. Public's going to have an opportunity to comment uh, throughout each phase. Some of the information is on the PUB's website, or all the information is on the PUB's website. But, you know, again, even if we have a clear explanation beyond market forces or market pressures as to why, like, for instance, last Thursday, furnace oil up 20 cents overnight, shortage of New York Jet, I believe it was called, which is 75% of the winter blend for furnace oils, okay. So even if we're given a clear explanation as how they arrived at a price, it doesn't make it any less distasteful, possibly, or it doesn't make it any more palpable, I guess is a better way to put it. But if you're involved in, or pardon me, if you're interested in engaging with the PUB's public consultations, go to their website and figure out how to get at it, and off you go. All right, I want to talk about some comments coming from the Prime Minister on healthcare transfer dollars, but I'll hold that as we get to your calls. First, we're on Twitter. Uh, we're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Yes, sir. Yes, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Not too bad. Uh, Patty, I, I, well, I want to talk about water's claims to Crown Lands. Okay. And uh, I've got some experience in this. I'm, I'm a, a new plan surveyor, so I've been working in this system for about 47 years now. So this squatter's claims is only the, really the tip of the iceberg here. There are a lot of other issues that need to be resolved, I think, before this, before this can be resolved. They want, to, they want to make the changes to it. They want to change it 10 years back from uh, 1977. Uh, that's only like chicken can on the road. So, you know, it's it's going to be happen. It's going to come up again in 10, ten years time. There will be people around who can verify occupation and that. And they want to limit the time limit uh, that people can apply to for squatter claims. And that's just uh, a way to eliminate squatter claims completely. So if they say five years, after five years, nobody will be able to apply uh, to Crown under a squatter claim. Uh, and they want to do quick claim deeds, which is what they're doing now, actually. If you apply for a piece of Crown land, uh, on their squatter's claim right now, what they give you is a quick claim deed, saying that they have no interest in the property. So they're not guaranteeing you as a, as a landowner that you have title to this property. 
I'm confused by that one as well, Rob. So there was three yes. areas of consideration put forward by Minister Bragg. That one and the uh, reducing the number of 20 years of continuous occupation down to 10. But as you rightfully point out, and I think backed up by Greg French, the lawyer out in Clarenville who deals with this on a professional level, is the last one about documentation that says the Crown has no interest. What does that mean long term? Like, what does that actually solve? Is that the end of the road? How do you get that documentation? What do you have to prove to get that? That's where there's a bit of gray area that I'm not really sure I understand. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It won't solve the problems. Uh, if you have a if you have a, a piece of property, you're you're, and there's a dispute between neighbours, we say, and we deal with this on a daily basis. Um, you go to Crown. To, you, what what did lawyers try to do? I guess is when they when they try to certify your title or guarantee your title, and they hardly ever do, uh, is go back to the original grant, the original grant owner. If you can trace the deeds back from the current owner back to the original grant, then it's pretty clear that, that the title is okay. Uh, but, uh, uh, let's see, no. <laughs> i got to get my thoughts straight. There. No problem. Take your time. Yeah. Uh, but there, if, you, if you have a dispute and there's no, there's no grant on the property, Crown will not get involved. They, they, you cannot get a, a grant from Crown if there's a dispute over a piece of property that's that does not grant it and, and uh, someone's claiming squatters claim squatters rights. The, the biggest problem I think we have here in Newfoundland is the whole registry system we have. There are two registries in Newfoundland. There's the Crown Lands Registry and that registers all Crown grants that, that are that go from the Crown to individuals. And then there's a, a registry of deeds which mm-hmm. registers any kind of a deed any sale or purchase or all kinds of deeds. Uh, but the registry of deeds is not compulsory. So when you, so people would be, would be shocked, I think, if they knew what they were paying for when they do a property transaction. They buy a piece of property, uh, the lawyer does the title search, and, and you can only search so far because deeds are not compulsory. It's not compulsory to register a deed. So really, you can't be certain at any time, whether there's an issue with that property, because these these may not be registered, it may be out there but not registered. Uh, that that's that's a big issue. Um, the yeah, so the deed, deeds don't don't have to be registered. So that, that's the problem. practically practically speaking, when they are not uh, registered. What does that mean for someone who's trying to deal with a crown issue and or looking for a zoning change or whatever the case may be? Well, not, I guess not so much for, for crown issues. The overall picture, I guess. The, the, uh, um, if if a, a deed is not registered and it comes up at some point, it, it, it may create issues for, for, for a landowner. Um, when, when you buy a property... The, if you go to a lawyer, usually what they do, they will register your deed for you. Okay, and in a lot of cases, the paperwork they do up for you is is stamped approved as to form only, which means they're not guaranteeing anything, but they're going to register for register it for you. And in the in the registry of deeds, what you're doing is you're making public the fact that hey, I, I own this piece of property. Now, in the registry of deeds, you can register practically anything. Uh, you can drop a sketch yourself. You know, you can just write out a written description saying that you're selling this piece of property, 75 by 100. And and then people think because it's registered, 
they, they, that 75 per 100 is, is, is uh, this, this is it. This is why I own 75 per 100. But in many cases, there are issues on the ground that we come up with where it's not 75 by 100. And try to convince some people that it's not, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's really a, a big issue. I think that one, just from uh, where I sit here this morning, that one feels like a standalone, that it needs its own approach, its own change of protocols, uh, you know, versus, say, the big crown lands issue in general. The more I hear from different people, whether it even be the minister or Greg French or other individuals going through the problem, is that unless, I, and I could be oversimplifying this, but unless we turn back the clock to the 1st of January 1977 and do away with the changes that were imposed that day, we're never going to figure it out to the tune where people who have had a home for decades on a piece of land, unbeknownst to them they don't own, we're never going to be able to make it seamless or effective or even efficient because changing yeah. all those things, 20 years to 10 years, documentation to prove Crown has no interest, any of those types of affairs, it's only going to deal with some piecemeal problems. It's only going to deal with a few issues. It's not going to clear it up the way we need to clear it up. Exactly. That's exactly true. We're, we're the only province in Newfoundland, in Canada, sorry, in Canada, that doesn't have a land registry system. If we had a land registry system, these, prob these problems would disappear. Because once, you, once your property is registered on their land's registry system, it's there, it's guaranteed. Newfoundland have no guarantees other than if you get it directly from Crown. And if there's a sweater saying, running on to say, well, we're going to say that we don't own it. That's as far as we're going to go with it. See, in Newfoundland, the, the, in, pre, in previous years, like years ago, when you applied for a piece of Crown land, it was a fairly cheap way to, to get a piece of property because you, you could lease it from Crown or you could buy it for a reasonable price. But 10 or 15 years ago, they came up with this idea that, hey, we're, we're not going to do that anymore. It's going to be uh, market value now for property. So if you want a piece of property uh, from Crown, it's going to cost you whatever it's going to cost. It would cost you if you were buying it from a private individual. So it's big bucks for government. No, no question. Yeah. It really is. I, I'm still, I don't think anyone's really told me in easy to understand terms exactly what led to the abolition of uh, squatters' rights, which was the decision made in 76. It became law on the 1st of January 77. Like, what was behind that? Simply the amount of money that can be coming in the door for government as they lay claim to the Crown land that has never been fully decided, you know, with proper surveys, proper transfer of ownership, proper registration of deeds. I don't know, but it sounds like that was the motivation back in the day. But this is a mess. I mean, it's not just the diamonds out in Catalina. We, I've got dozens of stories sitting in my email inbox, and maybe people would like to share them over the air because there's going to be hundreds or thousands of uh, families or individuals that all of a sudden are going to find out that they're going to have to hire a lawyer and go through the legal wrangling, acquiring a title, the length, the time, the amount of money it's going to take, the confusion yeah. and the worry. And here you are, you might have a couple of seniors saying, well, I'm going to move closer to my kids, or I'm going to move closer yeah. to uh, healthcare, or I'm simply going to downsize. And now all of a sudden, what they thought they had built up, the biggest piece of equity that most of us will ever have, and now you've got to go through that hoop. It's just unbelievable. It is, it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um like over the years, we, finance affairs, we're, we're the people who actually do the property, do the property surveys, and they register with, with Crown Lands. Or if, if individuals have a problem with their neighbor, we, we, we try to solve the problem. We can't solve it. We can only make suggestions, and hopefully the neighbors will will get together and say, "Okay, well, this makes sense." If we don't do that, we're going to have to go to court, and the court's going to cost us an arm and a leg. 
so sometimes we can do that, but other people, other times people dig their heels in, and, and it's it's become a big issue. But in, but in Crown Lands, uh, over the years, we've had a number of land surveyors within the system, within Crown Lands and, and other other departments. Right now, there are no land surveyors. We're, we're the boots on the ground. We know where the problems are and where the issues are, and how to solve some of it. But uh, right now, there are only two land surveyors within within the, the Crown Lands and the land system. Uh, so people before had a, had a fair idea of the problems that we're running into, but now it's more like a geography-based thing. If you to prove your ownership of a squatter's claim, what they do, they go back to old aerial photographs and they they de- try to determine whether a piece of property has been cleared for some reason, and that will sort of prove your ownership. But there are other ways to prove ownership. There are old maps out there. Uh, I'll give you an example. We, uh, I did a survey for a lady a few years back. She had bought a property and, and uh, built a house in the early 1960s. So she didn't she didn't qualify for a squatter's claim. She didn't she thought she owned it anyhow, and that's the way these things are found out. People think they own it anyhow, and that's not going to change <laughs> just by crowning and saying we're going to give you five years to, to fix it all up because people aren't going to do that, right? No. Nope. Uh, but this lady, uh, she, she had she bought the property in good faith. Uh, and I have maps that go back to 1898s that show <laughs> that this piece of property was owned by somebody. But she ended up having to pay Crown Land market value for a property that she bought back in 1960. Uh, and there's no, there's no bending with, with Crown Land. Like because, it, because the map, they couldn't find an, an old aerial photo that showed that the property was there. There's no ownership on it. Crown land. Yeah, and it's through no fault of the individual that, you know, they built their home in 1974 just to find out that what they thought was the reality of life changed in 77 and now maybe today thinking that over a conversation, over a cup of tea, well time to sell and then you yeah. find out of the hard way when it's way too late. Uh, Rob, I'm glad you called. Anything else you want to say this morning? Yes, okay. Uh, Nova Scotia had the same issues that we had years ago. About, about, about 15, 20 years ago, they implemented a land registry system which means that any, anything, any property that's sold now has to be surveyed and is registered in a registry lease. So now they have a, registry, uh, a land registry system where they had the same type of system we have now. We've got to do that here in Newfoundland. We've got to get out of Crown Lands altogether and do a registry, a proper registry. We know it. The lawyers know it. But for some reason, we've been talking to the lawyers about this for as long as I've been a member of the association. That's 47 years. And there's no, they don't seem to back us up for a small number. They're a big number, but they, they won't, they know the issues are there, but for some reason, uh, they won't push it with, with the government to actually do something to make this right. Appreciate the time, Rob. Thanks for the call. No problem. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. I mean, the Crown Lands issue is a mess. You know, we can put in a variety of amendments to the Lands Act. And some of them are going to be helpful to some families in their disputes with the government over a piece of land. But, and maybe, again, I'm kidding myself, but if we don't turn back the clock and just go back to the way it once worked prior to January the 1st, 1977, we're going to have so many amendments. What's already confusing is going to be even more so. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking consultations in the fishery. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number uh, four. Say good morning to the executive director at CFL. That's Ryan Clary. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners. Thanks for taking the call, sir. Pleasure. 
Patty, I'm calling this morning with a number of points on the fishery, but the first one I'd like to make is about uh, consultation. Now, as you know, public consultation is what governments usually do before amending laws, before passing new legislation. Consultation is key. Most politicians know that. Connecting with the grassroots, it's finger-on-the-pulse kind of stuff. But I'm not sure that Derek Bragg, the minister responsible for fisheries, knows that, Patty, or he's choosing to ignore consultation when it comes to the wild fisheries. I say that because there's now a trend in terms of Bragg's failure to consult with fishermen on the ground, in their communities, either virtually or in person. And I'll give you a couple of examples. I'll give you three examples. In, 2000, in, in 2021, two years ago, the minister ordered a review of foreign ownership in the processing sector. You remember that, Patty. I do. Last year, he called a review of the province's fish price setting system. Now, Bragg did both reviews without holding consultations with fishermen in either case. He didn't do it virtually. He didn't do it in person. The minister and his staff did meet with the heads of the organizations. He did ask for input through Engage Newfoundland and Labrador. He certainly did that. That's undeniable. But that engagement, Patty, my point, is that it wasn't thorough. Organizations prepare position papers and briefing notes. Fishermen do not. So, Patty, this has come to a head because just recently, Bragg quietly, quietly, emphasis on quietly, approved changes to the Professional Fish Harvesters Certification Board. Now, for the information of your listeners who are not fishermen, that's the board that lays out the different levels, apprentice, level one, level two, that you have to go through to eventually become an inshore enterprise owners. CNL, that's, as you said, that's the organization that I represent. Uh, we speak for enterprise owners, for, for license holders. We had asked for a public review of the certification board. You've you probably heard complaints uh, on your show as well. Fishermen have complained for years that the certification criteria are too stringent. It's too difficult to pass on fishing licenses within families. Financing of a new enterprise is also a huge issue. The minister, Bragg, he turned down the request and he quietly, again, quietly made changes to the qualifying criteria criteria without consulting fishermen. Now, again, this is the third time. Foreign ownership in the processing sector, the fish pricing system, which is critical in this province uh, for setting the price of all species of fish, and now the certification board. I, I believe your first call this morning was about uh, public consult was about crown land. I believe that there are public consultations, at least virtual consultations, when it comes to changes to crown lands. Uh, but my question for for Minister Bragg, for Minister Bragg, is what does he have against spe- speaking with fishermen? Because he's not doing it, Patty. Those yeah. are three examples, three critical issues, and he did not consult with the grassroots. And what the fishermen have to say at the grassroots level is a hell of a lot different than what the organizations, than the organizational leadership often has to say. Yeah, probably so. Uh, would the transfer of license, as you know, as part of my retiring and passing it on to my family as, a, as the enterprise owner, does that require an adjustment to federal tax legislation as much as it does to provincial jurisdiction? Federal tax legislation? Well, I mean, everything like that where you pass along something of value to somebody, you know, just an exchange of title, it comes with tax implications, number one. Uh, so I've ju- this is simply a question based on, out of ignorance, not that I know one way or the other, but does that have issues that need to be dealt with at the federal level as much as provincial accommodations? Um, well, you're talking about capital gain, the impact on capital gains, this sort of thing. That's, but, one, uh, that's one area, yeah. You're right. I mean, that, but that is a federal aspect of it. Um, yeah. uh, y- y- 
that wouldn't have implication and changes to the provincial to provincial policy when it comes to this. Uh, that that's a different issue in terms of fe- in terms of federal tax. It's it's a little different. Yeah, I'm just asking answer. how that factored into potential amendments being made. Uh, okay, look, I think dealing with people on the front lines, regardless of what we're talking about, the industry we're talking about, is the only way to have a clear picture painted as to what's actually happening. Let me put it this way as well. So we've had instances over the years. I remember back when Clyde Jackman was the Minister of Fisheries. And there was a couple of uh, opportunities where there was going to be processors and uh, the Seafood Processors Association. There would be harvesters inshore, offshore. There would be representative organizations like the FFAW in-house, DFO, all trying to come out with a better understanding of where everyone's coming from. And there was handshakes and winks and nods and smiles. And then everyone went back to their own corners. And this is not an unnecessary criticism or anything, but people want what they want when they want it, what's best for them, whether it be inshore, offshore, plant owner or buyer or distributor or otherwise, because that's the essence of what they do for a living. So when you hold the consultations, how does that factor into good policy? Because everyone's just going to tell the, the minister what they want. And, of course, there's going to be contradictions and overlaps and impossibilities uh, no, of, if everyone is accommodated. I don't agree with that, Patty. I don't think everybody's going to tell the minister uh, what he wants. Why is the minister holding consultations on changes to Crown lands? He, he's doing that because he needs to consult with the people. Oh, I think if they should changing, consult with the fishermen. Uh, that was yeah, my starting no, point. Totally. 100%. If you're changing policy, legislation, amending legislation, whatever you're doing, and it directly impacts fishermen, particularly with these issues, uh, you know, uh, foreign control of the processing sector, the price of fish, how you price fish. If you're not consulting fishermen, well, by your consult, your consultations are not thorough. End of story. So the message that Bragg and the government has to get, or, or the question that needs to be asked them, asked them is, why no consultations? It's it's pretty simple. People don't understand why they're ignoring the opinions of fishermen. I got a quick note I also want to make on the election, uh, uh, Patty. Uh, Greg Pretty is president of the FFAW. Now, you know, and, and I think that the, the broader public is getting the message that CNL represents enterprise owners. We are the, their distinct voice. Most CNL members, most of them, not all of them, are also members of the FFAW. From our perspective, we have a direct interest in the FFAW election because, again, most of our members were also union members. Union credibility impacts fish price negotiations and all other aspects of the fishing industry in terms of representation. From our perspective and from the perspective of most fishermen around the province, um, and um, that's revealed itself in terms of the money that Jason Sullivan has raised for his, for his court challenge in terms of $50,000 in a few days yep. – most fishermen are saying that this was not fair. Just on the face of it, in terms of uh, when Dave Callahan, when Jason Sullivan learned that there were candidates or, or not candidates two days before the chair of the election committee was Greg Pretty's ex-wife, on and on and on. I mean, just on the face of it, uh, it was not a fair um, election. And perception uh, is absolute reality. Another question I have with that is, our opinion is not. Our opinion is that it's not fair. The court process will will, will it, it will make it its way through um, um, the courts. But my broader point is that the silence of the other unions in this province, be it the Federation of Labor, uh, other union leaders, is deafening. I mean, I think that all union leaders should be speaking out about this process and the fact that it wasn't fair. I heard Greg Pretty on your show speak about how well our constitution. Uh, allows for it and, and this sort of thing, but that does not make it right. In the in this fishery in 2023, there is an absence of common sense. 
Was the election fair? Was it not fair? Well, boy, I can tell you right now, most fishermen, every wharf in this province believe that election was not fair. And the fact that be it Greg Pretty or other union leaders can go on their merry way and ignore that, I just, I just, I, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm glad Jason Sullivan is taking this uh, to court, and we'll have to see how that plays out. The last point I want to make, Patty, speaking to Jason Sullivan, is he has officially resigned as the president of our organization, CNL. So we have an annual general meeting CNL does coming up on February the 16th in Gander, and we're going to have an election for a new leader for a new president. Um, I'll have details. More details will be out by the end of this week. But my message to your listenership this morning, Patty, to enterprise owners right around this province is it's time for leadership to step forward. We're going to have a fair emphasis on fair and democratic election on the 16th for a new leader of CNL, the distinct voice of enterprise owners. So if you're an enterprise owner anywhere around this province, you have leadership aspirations or you're just tired of the way things are being done, Patty, now is the time to take a stand. Fair enough. I think what might give the union a little bit of trouble or consternation is the 11th hour decision to eliminate or to reject Mr. Sullivan. I think that's that's the one I think that comes across if we're talking about fairness, even though fairness doesn't always bleed into legalities. <laughs> but that one to me came across as completely unnecessary and certainly outside the bounds of what would be a fair process. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Ryan Cleary, uh, ED at CNL. Let's go to line number three. Jane, you're on the air. Oh, hi. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing? Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I just um, I just wanted to point out um, something about the roundabout and one of the roundabouts in uh, Galway. Yep. Um, to whoever needs to hear it, which I think uh, is a lot of people. <laughs> um, when you leave... Uh, like if you're at Costco, for example, like I just was, and you leave, um, you come up on that first roundabout, both lanes, you can go straight down towards um, like the houses and that new highway that's going to connect to Southlands, if you know where I'm talking about. I do. Um, both lanes, you can go straight. The left lane, you can turn, go around the roundabout. The right lane, you cannot. And the right lane is where I see a lot of people... There was three vehicles this morning. I was in the left lane, which it is an inconvenience because you want to get on Pitts Memorial. you got to get in the left lane and then switch to the right lane once you leave the roundabout. But there was three vehicles in that right lane that just came around the roundabout with me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the sign clearly indicates you can't go around the roundabout if you're in the right lane. It, it does. But you know what happens out there, I'm going to guess, Jane? is that some people just approach those roundabouts with great fear anyway, or trepidation, or whatever the right word is. And so consequently, they're a little bit indecisive when they get in it. They maybe have, you know, been nervous to change lanes when appropriate. Next thing you know, they miss their turn. And then, of course, they, they're stuck in the right lane. They don't want to get out of that because, of course, the right lane is where they need to get back around <laughs> to hit their proper exit. So I see that happening fairly often in those types of setups. So as opposed to people don't care about the rules, I think sometimes they're white-knuckled at the steering wheel and just make poor lane decisions yeah. more than anything else. I agree. I agree 100%. I also think that people uh, ex- like speed up when they get into a roundabout because they also yeah. uh, panic. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I think when, the, when that new road opens up, 
I guess we'll just have to be extra cautious because if anyone is going to go straight down uh, in that left lane, they just better watch out for that right lane. <laughs> yeah, a bit of eye contact. Everyone's got to be attentive to their blinkers. You know, there's because if you are not fearful of them, they can be really quite helpful for traffic calming, for the uh, flow of traffic. But all it takes is a couple of nervous folks inside it and maybe a little bit unsure of where to go and when to get there. Then next thing you know, you've got a potential uh, fender bender just because you've got some stress involved as opposed to knowledge of what you should be doing. Uh, I appreciate this, Jane, but the heads up, you know, that area... It's a little bit of a convoluted setup anyway, uh, and I'm a fan of the roundabout. I think they can work. That one does come across as a little bit unnecessarily congested, you know, in the close mm-hmm. proximity of all the roundabouts to be in the one so-called roundabout. And now that you mention <laughs> it, you know, here we are talking about the inability or the lack of want for the city to deal with uh, the lights and the battery. But, buddy, I'll tell you what, that Christmas tree in Danny's roundabout, got to go. <laughs> Life or death. Unbelievable. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. I hear you. Thanks. You have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Okay, bye. It's, you know, and look, there's going to be some folks who are elected representatives on the city who are going to be crossed with that, but hey, you help me understand. You know, why is it all of a sudden a Christmas tree has to go? And it, it was just an ad hoc decision, okay. But we absolutely made amendments when we talked about the restriction of personal use of uh, fireworks, for instance. But, you know, the only difference between a Roman candle and those lights in the battery is a wick. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes, Doris. I'll call in as I discussed there with the ongoing uh, health diversions that have happened at Goose Bay, which affect all of Labrador and how the Upstream districts and that is being moved over into uh, Lab West for an extended 10 days. Um, after the original deadline was held by. But I want to talk about the effect that it's having on the uh, majority of Labradorians, but also how, uh, you know, it's a sign of, uh, you know, of underfunding our healthcare system is basically what this accumulated down to is. So right now you have obviously a lot of pregnant women and stuff from different regions of Labrador who typically go to Happy Valley Goose Bay. And that's how Happy Valley Goose Bay's hospital was designed. It was a central hub for north and uh, northern parts of southern Labrador. And the idea was that it was, you know, and, and it is, Goose Bay is, is the hub for, for, the, uh, for eastern Labrador. So right now, it was designed for that. It was, that's where it was. Now you have all these individuals from different parts of Labrador who now have to come to a region that is not designed to have influx of traveling patients. Labrador West is not designed for that. Uh, we don't have an abundant availability of accommodation. We don't have an ba- abundant availability of houses. So, uh, so this is where you put a lot of women who were who had their whole plan because you know they had not you know they're pregnant. They have nine months to plan their birth plan, and now you turn it on the head that now you have to go to a place that just does not accommodate. Travel healthcare. We're tra- we travel out. Labrador West is designed that we have certain entities here, but for most of everything else, we end up at the Health Science Center. So this is where you can clearly see where for years this is this is not just happened because of COVID or the last three years. This is years of ignoring government, ignoring the health needs and the uniqueness of Labrador, and by underfunding and by basically. Just not, you know, reacting to 
I'd say generations of, hey, look over here, we have an issue. Okay. Uh, It's hard for me to say anything to contradict any of that, but let me put this in the form of a question then. Do you think that even if there was more money involved, that that would necessarily solve the situation? Because I think what we're seeing is in a the professionals that are in such high demand everywhere in the world, certainly in this country, location will be part of their decision-making as to whether or not. Then you factor in some of the concerns that you and I have talked about in the past. It's access to other amenities. It's the cost of getting in and, in and out of there. So even if there was more money, do you think that would settle it? You know, add to it, if I was the doctor that would be considering Labrador, is there an opportunity for my partner? Are there opportunities for my children? Those types of things which I think makes Dr. Megan Hayes' job the most typical in the province. What do you think? Absolutely, there is a part of that because... In 2019, when I first got elected, that's before COVID and before all this other stuff, I asked the Minister of Health at the time, I asked for a specific recruitment plan for physicians for Labrador because LG Health just couldn't do it. They were having a hard time then, and that's before all the other recruitment problems from the rest of the province, was having a hard time then to actually look at what would actually, from the province's help, to help recruit doctors. At the time, I was told that is the jurisdiction of the health authority. They would not help the health authority. They would not give them any more funds. They would not help the health authority. Because if you go back to 2016, you remember that same health minister told all the health authorities to tighten their belts and start cutting funds. So this is a culmination of years of underfunding and cuts to the health system has now accumulated down to the fact that the health authorities we're in a panic, and now they end up having to get locums and private nursing uh, recruitment companies to come in and backfill everything that they lost because they were cut to the bone. And now this is actually a good example of what putting p- private health care into the public health care is that we have private companies trying to backfill public nurses, and guess what happened? Christmas come around. The nurses that work for the private company said, we're not working during Christmas. And now we have this situation where we actually had sections of the largest hospital in Labrador closed. And this is what happened right now. Yeah, I have really struggled on this issue. I know for some it's, you know, it's all boiled down to simply dollars and cents. But I saw a headline yesterday. There was an 80% vacancy in nurses in Nova Scotia, 80%. So... That brings me back to the thoughts that I've tried to, you know, put out there for discussion purposes about money. Like, there's big national news stories about uh, federal health care transfer dollars. The prime minister say there's an announcement coming soon with conditions and up and down the line, whether it be access to primary care, mental health services, whatever the case may be. But when the competition appears to be as severe as it is between provinces, between countries— I don't know if we have maybe kidded ourselves ourselves into thinking that it's just about the money. Because if it was, we'd be in way better shape. Now, that's not to dismiss the money concern, because I know plenty of healthcare professionals where their only concern is money. But there's so many other stories bleeding into about location, work-life balance, relationship with the health authority, relationship with the manager, the hospital, the government. So I completely get your point. But when you have the systemic underfunding that has happened in your region over years, it probably becomes, uh, it arrives at the top of the list because it's been a cycle as opposed to what we've seen in the last few years necessarily regarding the pandemic and what, and what have you. Well, 
Well, absolutely, Patty, because if you look at it, you can go on LG Health's website, and they'll tell you how many vacancies they have. And even before all this right now, it was massive. Like, we were out audiologists and radiologists and, um, you know, diagnostic imaging, all that. But right now, there's 271 vacancies in Labrador-Grenfell Health. That's the size of a Labrador town vacant from our health authority. And this is not new. This is not this last year or last two years. This is a at least a decade in the making. And government underfunded us and ignored us. And this is now what we have come down to. And here's the thing about it, Patty, is that we don't have the same access to health care as anywhere else in this province. If I get sick today, Patty, I'm in the hospital and I'm waiting for an air ambulance. That's what happens here in Lab West. I can't just go and get someone to bring me to the health science center and even have to wait in the health science center. Because waiting even in the health science center, even though it's a long wait, would be sometimes faster than what happens in Labrador. Imagine someone in Maine, same thing, but they have to go two legs farther than I would have to on an air ambulance. So this is the thing. We are a different situation, but we were ignored by not just this government. We can look back at the previous governments, too. We've been ignored, and we've asked for help for decades. And right now, all of a sudden, we're in diversions. This is the worst-case scenario for us because we don't have the same access as everybody else in this province has. I appreciate the time this morning. Jordan, last word goes to you before we take a break for the news. Absolutely, because this is the time for government to step up and realize it's not one size fits all in this province. Right now, you have to look at it differently because we don't have the same access as everybody else. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate this. Take care, Jordan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. Okay, it is time for the newscast. When we get back, George, appreciate your patience. You're there, and then we're going to talk about food security. Massive issue right across the country, and certainly right here. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. George, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, uh, yeah, this is about uh, on the 6th of January, I made there was a post made about me by the RCMP saying that I was evading arrest and I'm at large in Labrador City. Um, they made the post around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I was picking up some tools from a former employer. And uh, I got a call around 20 after 1. One of my good friends um, called me from Goose Bay, asked me what was going on. And I said, nothing, I'm just picking up some tools. And he said, boy, you were on Facebook. I said, no, no, I haven't been. He said, I'd go have a look. He said, they got uh, they got a poster saying you're evading arrest and there's warrants out for you. And I said, Jesus, that's, that's funny. Like, they got my number. So I looked on Facebook, and I seen seen their posts uh, saying I'm at large in Labrador City of Aiden Arrest. So I went straight to the RNC here in Labrador City. And uh, they they said, yeah, how can we help you? And I said, uh, well, apparently I'm of Aiden Arrest. And they were kind of baffled. And I said, he, he thought I was joking. And I, I turned my phone around and showed him the posts on Facebook. And he said, that's strange. He said, it even says you're in Labrador City. No one even called us. But, and nobody called me, you know, and they, they've got my number on file. You know, like, I know that for a fact. They admitted it to me in the last few days. But So they, they were on the phone then with the RCMP in Goose Bay for, geez, an uh, hour and a half here at the RNC trying to figure I don't even think they had a warrant printed out. They just made the post, like, 
prematurely, you know, and then uh, I sat here in the RNC for about an hour and a half until they figured it out, and then uh, they held me, of course, they had, that was when they got the paperwork, and, you know, no no big deal, but they uh, they treated me like gold here, like, the, you couldn't ask for a better crowd of men and women than uh, the officers here in Labrador City that work for this constab. Like, so, they're, they're excellent. George, how did it all begin? Like, where did this stem from where they thought that that was a post that was accurate? Uh, that, my, my friend. That yeah. Me. Well, it was the RCMP uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's page is uh, who made the post. It's still there online. Like, I mean, they, they never removed it. And then they made another post saying that I turned myself in in Goose Bay. And it, it, it's like, and my employer even even called them. Like they they seen the posts and they've got them. You know, like they've got a legal obligation to say, well, we know where he's still. He works for us. And it was about forty five minutes after the RCMP made the post, and he he called them and they said, uh, oh, we don't need any information from you. They just blew him off. And he's like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like you're. You're you're posting this guy all over the province, all over all over social media, saying there's warrant out for his arrest, and like then you don't want any information. Like there's something some funny going on here, you know? Like so was it mistaken identity, or someone gave him bogus information, or there was an illegitimate complaint called into them, or what? Well, it's a it wasn't mistaken identity. They they know who I am, but it was a, a bogus complaint. And, I mean, like, instead of uh, doing a bit of investigation, you know, calling me, asking me where I might have been, or, you know, they they just blatantly press charges. Like, there was no, there's no investigation at all. And, I mean, like, I, I don't know if it's because I'm I'm Aboriginal or what it is, but, like, if, I believe so. If, if you were ever in the correctional centre in Labrador, you'd believe it, too. There's, there's, it's, it's 99.9% Aboriginals, and there's no non-native guys in there. One or two out of 72 guys, right? Or, and like I've had people say, oh well, it's the local demographic. But uh, if you look up the stats in Labrador, there's, there's 30,000 people in Labrador. There's 10,000 Aboriginals, and there's 20,000 residents who are non-Aboriginal. But yet our, our correction center here is 100% native. You know, like there's there's uh, obvious bias going on here. There's no way that the 10,000 Aboriginals are doing all the crime in Labrador. You know, like it, it just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to get into that portion of the conversation. That's been long discussed nationwide about the treatment of Indigenous Canadians by different uh, law enforcement agencies. So now that, has it been settled? Did they, like, apologize, or did they give you any better understanding as to how you got that call from your buddy to tell you that, you know, check the Facebook, your picture's being bandied about? Uh, actually, um, no, they're, they're they, uh, when, when I call the RCMP, it's like there's uh, in Goose Bay, because that's who I've got to deal with, that's who made the post. Uh, it, it's almost like there's, they, they put me on speakerphone, and there's two or three officers giggling in the background, like, uh, and I've I've tried to make a formal complaint into the RCMP. There's a 1-800 number for a com, com, complaints commission. Uh, when you call the 1-800 number, it tells you that there's no staff due to COVID or something along those lines, and it gives you a website. 
So you go on the website and you try to fill out the form, and you could fill it out as much as you want. When you click submit, it'll say there's an error in your form somewhere. And you, I, I did. I've been doing this since I got released the following Monday. Um, I've been trying to make a, a formal complaint in, about this post, and it's, it's it's not possible. The only way that, like, uh, if I call St. John's, the RCMP out there, they'll tell me i got to speak to the commander in Goose Bay. And I've tried. I've tried to make a complaint through the commander. It's, it's like uh, nothing's being taken seriously. Like, they, they, can, they can post my face and everything all over Facebook. And it doesn't matter, you know, like uh, uh, with false information, you know what I mean? Like I, there was no way I was evading arrest. If I was, I wouldn't have went to the RNC here in Labrador City, you know, and it it just doesn't, uh, it's pretty frustrating when like, you know, I had to spend four and four nights then here at the RNC stressing out, uh, like if, am I going to have a job on Monday? Am I going to, you know, what's, what's going to happen, right? Like what's this all going to amount to? And it, it it's uh, it, it's it feels like I'm being picked on, and I'm not I'm not even kidding. And I'm no I know I'm not the only guy in Labrador that feels this way. Like the the RCMP are 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 a completely racist and sexist organization, and I don't I really do not believe they should be allowed to function anymore in Canada because they they were actually a part of residential schools. They were the ones who enforced it. A lot of people don't realize that. They, everyone blames the church, the church this, the church that. But the RCMP went around and took the kids and brought them to the schools. You know, like they, they're not they're not there to protect our interests like they should be. You know what I mean? Uh, fair enough. Did, did you try to lodge the complaint above the local level? Because there's a civilian review panel for RCMP that deals with formal complaints. Have you gone to the national body as opposed to simply try to deal with the local commander? Yeah, I've, I've called the uh, Complaints Commission, the Civilian Complaints Commission. It's a 1-800 number. It is, yeah. And uh, when you call the 1-800 number, it says there's no staff due to COVID or, or I, I don't remember the exact words, but there's, there's no one there to answer the phone. So they give you a web, uh, an online form that you've got to fill out, but you go on and you try and fill the form out. You can. I've sat there for days, and I'm literally days. I've been trying to submit a formal complaint. And the only other way besides that uh, complaints commission, the Civilian Complaints Commission, is through the commander in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And I tried to even speak to somebody in St. John's who would uh, be able to take a complaint, and they can't because it's not their detachment. The only place I could make it is with the commander in Happy Valley Goose Bay, who doesn't have the time of day. It's like he's... I don't know, like they're not doing investigations, they're just charging people on a whim, you know, and I mean, at the end of the day, this is going to cost taxpayers more money than what it's worth. Like they don't have a a shred of evidence saying that I was in Goose Bay because I I was in Labrador City, and I mean, okay, we're we're like, it's it's going to be thrown out of court. So because it's it's hearsay, it's all hearsay. So I mean, how, how are you going to waste tens of thousands of dollars uh, on this court case without any evidence. You know what I mean? It, it just doesn't make a, any sense to me at all. Well, if it could be proven you weren't even where they say you were, then this doesn't make it to court, right? Well, it'll still go to court. They, there's there's no ends, ifs, or buts about it. it. It doesn't get thrown out just because they don't have evidence. But, like, they, they, 
they're treating me as if I was guilty of something, right? And I mean, in Canada, you're supposedly innocent until proven guilty. And I, I've dealt with the law system to, enough to tell you that that's not true at all. You're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And that's 100% truth. They treat you as a guilty man, no matter what the charges are. You are guilty until they prove you innocent, especially if you're Aboriginal. Like, I know, like, of uh, other cases, well, we won't get into that, but there's a lot of a lot of biased uh, actions that go on in Happy Valley Goose Bay and racist. I mean, it's just not, it doesn't sit well with me. And I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go for help. I mean, I can't I can't really afford to uh, hire a law firm to to go about this, you know, like it, it's that's an expensive endeavor, you know, and uh, I mean, now, like since I since I got released the following Monday, I mean, I, I work, I go and get groceries, I'm, I go out to the restaurants, I mean, I get looked at like I'm a monster all over the place, all over town. It's almost, I was, it's, it's embarrassing to go outside of the house, you know. Let me know how this plays out, George. Uh, yeah, for sure. I appreciate uh, the time this morning. I wish you well. I appreciate you having me on the air. Thanks. Take care, George. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, you've got to be pretty careful and due diligence associated with putting someone's face out there as wanted and accused of something if they weren't even in this, the, the town where the allegations were launched. Let's take a break. Food security is up next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk a little food security. Go to line number five. Say good morning to the member from Mount Pearl South. Lance, the independent member. That's Paul Lane. And, Paul, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Um, Patty, um, before I get into the topic, I just listened to that previous caller, uh, George, I think his name is. Yep. And uh, for what is worth, if he's listening there, um, if I was in his situation and I could not uh, get an answer at that 1-800 number and, uh, and the uh, online form wasn't working for me, I'd be contacting my uh, federal MP. And while they're not going to get involved, as obviously the merits of the case, they should be able to uh, obtain a number where he can actually speak to a warm body or uh, get that form into the hands of the appropriate person for him. So in his case, I guess that would be Yvonne Jones. So if he's listening, that's who I would be calling. Yeah, fair enough. I, you know, sometimes uh, think the right thing to do is put them on to their MHA or the Member of Parliament. When you get into the legal system and pending cases, my experience has been pretty clear. Uh, everyone is loath to get involved, and for the most part, they probably should not. If it's a matter for some assistance with filling out a form, fair enough, and I'm sure their Miss Jones' executive assistant could do exactly that. But other than that, I don't even think it's a good idea for politicians to be involved at that level of criminal justice. Do you? No, absolutely not. And I never get involved in that, nor do I get involved in CYFS. Those are two that you really are hands-off on. But <coughs> excuse me, that would be in terms of actually getting involved in the case. But as I said, in this particular case, this gentleman is saying that there's a complaint process. He's calling the number, and uh, and all he's getting is a recording saying that there's nobody in the office. And the online complaint forms not working. So all I'm suggesting is Miss Jones' office should be able to help him in getting his complaint to the appropriate person. Once she's done that, she's out of it. Then let the let the process play out as it as it should, right? Fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Patty, I did want to talk about food security because I, I listened to the story there about Food First NL and uh, that valuable program that was going to be ending uh, because of funding and so on. And you know, uh, you've talked about it on your show many times. We've talked about it. 
Uh, food security is a real issue for uh, folks here on the island, and the uh, and I know like food banks in my area uh, have been struggling. The, the the lines are simply growing, and we're seeing it all across the province uh, with inflation and so on, and uh, things are getting worse. And now with the uh, interest rates, which haven't got <coughs> a lot of talk. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still struggling with the flu. Um, interest rates is having a huge impact on uh, people in terms of their mortgage payments have gone up substantially. So uh, these continue to be challenges. So, you know, I know government can't be everything to all people, but when I think about the fact that I, I look at the sugar tax as an example and the revenue that's being derived from the sugar tax and a significant portion of that revenue, as I understand it, is going towards tax credits for gym memberships, as an example, um, People who can afford to go to the gym uh, and pay those pay that for not all, but for the most part, they don't necessarily need the tax credit. Now, are they going to accept the tax credit? Sure, they are. Anyone would. It was like the five hundred dollar check and the threshold of you know one hundred twenty five thousand dollars that you could get at least a portion of the five hundred and uh, a hundred thousand you get the five hundred. <coughs> yeah, I have to question how many people. Again, most people will take it and say, hey, listen, you're going to give me free money, I'll take it. But, you know, in terms of priorities and so on, um, I guess the point I'm making is that government can always find money for for programs uh, and initiatives, uh, but it's all about priorities. So, you know, to see a program like this with Food First NL uh, falling by the wayside when you see money being spent on other things like that is disappointing and it makes you question government's uh, priorities on these matters. Yeah, I mean, the, the sugar tax, I know there's a lot of people that were refer to it as nothing but a tax grab. There are things that government can do to encourage different choices, but that generally is best served at the point where it's manufactured. So the only place that I found that it actually ever worked, if we're talking about people changing their purchasing habits and uh, eating things and drinking things that are less harmful, is if you have a reduction in the amount of sugar in a, in a beverage, period. So, yeah. you know, a tax incentive to lower the sugar content at the manufacturing stage probably has a lot more impact because then people will simply buy a product that, regardless if they like it or loathe it, will simply have less sugar. Now, I'm not suggesting either are required because, you know, sin taxes, they only work when they're accompanied by all sorts of programs and educational exercises and up and down the line, simply not throwing a tax on a product. Add to it the confusion with you go to one store, one product has got a tax on it, a sugar tax. Go to another store, same product, no tax. So, yeah. you know, there's been nothing but confusion on this one. I don't know how much that's contributing to the amount of money going out the door for individuals or families simply based on sugar taxes. But... You know, I, I get the outcome. Hope is that there will be less of those related health concerns that come with sugar, but uh, I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I question it, but at the end of the day, what I'm saying here is that even if we move forward with the sugar tax, which we obviously have, I'm talking about the revenues being derived from yeah, the yeah. sugar tax. So when you see it being put towards tax breaks on gym memberships and so on, but then at the same time you see programs like Food First were, ha were, were you know, being cancelled, you have to question the priorities. And I know there are some people out there, you know, when they talk about food banks and food security, and they'll say, look, go get a job. I've heard it so many times. These people need to go get a job or whatever. And look, there are some people that, uh, that are in that situation um, and uh, because they, you know, unfortunately because of health or mental health or addictions, 
they're legitimately there. Are there people in the system that could be working and are taking advantage of of the system? I'm sure there are some there. But what always, what I always think about when I come back to that, when people mention to me about people that are taking advantage of stuff and abusing it, they should be working and so on. I often say to people, how about if they have children? Did the child choose to live in that situation where there's hardly any money coming through the door and the child is hungry? The child didn't choose that. So we can't ignore these programs uh, because we might have some issue or some perceived issue with the parent. We have to remember there are children involved and children cannot be going around uh, you know, hungry and, and, and in poverty. So these programs are very important and Anything we can do to support it, I think we need to do. Uh, it's unfortunate that every time that we see an issue that, uh, you know, we have to have volunteers step into the plate doing fundraisers and so on. I mean, that's all good stuff. I've been involved in a lot of it myself. But <coughs> I really feel like the government should be doing more. And uh, when I hear that story, for example, about that person talking about the that property that was supposed to be used for marijuana uh, grow uh, operations and so on, that's just sitting there that could be used for you know, growing vegetables and stuff all year round. I mean, these are things like, let's start looking at social enterprises like that, where we could help supply the food banks. Let's look at, like, why don't we lobby the federal government? Uh, like, the fishery is a common property resource. So why can't we lobby the, the federal government, for example, to get a quota of cod that would be dedicated to the food banks, or at the very least, to deal with this bycatch issue and allow that to be brought in? and we distribute to the food bank. So yeah. That's what we're doing with the moose meat and so on. There's things we could be doing to help people that are legitimately hungry. And it's sad when you think about it. In this, you know, in 2023, in the province in Canada, to talk about the fact that there are children and seniors and people who are literally hungry on the daily. Something's wrong with that, and we really need to do more. Yeah, I mean, the canopy facility, I don't think there's any opportunity to do anything until we know what canopy plans on doing with it. So I guess everyone's just simply waiting, but it's the technology. It's the ability to have maybe not even that large a scale, 232,000 square feet worth of, uh, whether it be, I think it's about 83,000 for growing opportunities, but in storage and offices and what have you. But if we had those types of uh, innovative plants or greenhouses, pardon me, in different parts of the province, peppered all over the place, It'll go a long right. way. I don't know why we don't do a little bit more here. You know, if we have a crisis in a variety of things, and governments react, and they mobilize when there are a crisis. And to, if anyone can tell me that food insecurity is not a crisis in the province, they're kidding themselves. And so why we don't see more mobilizing by provincial governments, federal governments on this front? Because remember, a food bank was a backstop, one-time thing, out of necessity. Now it's become a, a rail that government relies on in full. There's millions of Canadians. If it wasn't for food bank, they'd be starving in the streets. First world Canada this century is just unbelievable. And we've allowed it to happen. It, government is a distinct failure in governance. Uh, I'm off to the break, Paul. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. And, uh, and you're right. We absolutely need to do more. And the uh, government has the ability. Once again, it's about making it a priority. I'm not talking about borrowing more money, spending more money. But as I said, when you're seeing money going out the door with these $500 checks to someone make $125,000 a year. When you're seeing money going out in gym membership, uh, tax credits, and all this stuff, you have to ask yourself, are we really prioritizing the spend on the people who need it the most? Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. Take okay. care, Paul. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line four. Keith, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? 
good thank you. I've listened to your program faithfully, and uh, I've had a problem with the Department of Fisheries. Okay. Uh, years ago, uh, I had a long liner. I fished with six people in my, uh, on my boat, and um, I went away to the mainland to work. And when I came back, I wanted to go back fishing again, and I called the Department of Fisheries to get my license reinstated or what I had to do. There was no, they had no recollection, they had no record of me ever being in the fishery. They said I was never in the fishery. They were going to call me back, never did get a phone call. What can you suggest? Well, so, I mean, there's no proof you've ever been in the fishery? Yeah. Period? Yep. So there's a licensing board, so they'd be able to provide some documentation as to whether or not you were an enterprise owner or a deckhand. Wouldn't your T4s reflect any pay that you got as a result of working in the inshore? I mean, isn't there just some of that basic documentation that must be kicked around somewhere, regardless of whether or not DFO has it? Well, the thing is, uh, I did have a fishing license from the Department of Fisheries. I had a loan from the Fisheries Loan Board. Well, don't you have those documents? I mean, because that seems to be pretty much proof positive that you had been involved. Yeah, but like I said, they can't find any record of it in their in their archives or anywhere. You don't have a record? I don't have any records now. I mean, this is it. We're going back uh, 20 years, right? Okay. Well, I mean, so wouldn't the licensing board have something? Wouldn't the union be able to do something? If you're ever a dues-paying member there, you must have had some involvement. So those two entities come to the top of mind. Well, I've tried on both uh, on at both of these places, and and nobody, is, I never get any return call. All right. Well, I know people at the licensing board. Maybe I'll just zip them off a quick note and see how long they keep records and whether or not that's something they can assist you with. And if sh- if so, you send me an email and I'll respond with whatever they tell me. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, it's open line at vocm.com. No sweat. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome, Keith. Take care. Right, bye bye. Yeah, there's got to be records of that somewhere. All right, that's shouldn't be that complicated. Uh, let's go to the break. When we come back, Rob's here to talk about paying taxes. All right, don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Okay, here we go. Line number one, Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm just. You know, this government stuff, like, you know, they're taking money from us, mm-hmm. and then they sit there and they regurgitate it back to us after they've made money on us because they've taken it from us, and they say it's a good thing that we're getting, you know, these $500 checks and this, that, and the other. But it's just, it's disgusting that they're not putting it into programs that can actually means something to communities such as such as homelessness is the biggest thing you know like i i i feel so much for these people um you know i don't have any income right now yet i will go down and and i'll throw five dollars to somebody sitting on the corner and stuff like that but the government is not doing nothing and they're well i don't think they're doing enough I don't know if nothing is the right way, but they're not doing enough or they're not focusing in the right area. You know, there's lots of programs, federally, provincially. There's some things that the municipalities can do. But the number of people homeless, the most recent survey here, 
Uh, just in the city alone was 231 people are homeless. And you know full well that doesn't reflect an accurate number. It's got to be way more than that. And that's just yeah, in St. John's. So it's, I think, fair to say that they're not doing enough. I mean, housing solves a lot of issues. It just really, truly does. There's a couple of countries, if you look at the best practices and the outcomes of the, some of the policies, there's things that we can do that will actually in the long term, in the long run, make us way better off, whether we start with interactions with the healthcare system, criminal justice, you know, public safety. There's a lot of things can be addressed with a better approach to homelessness. And, you know, stop focusing in on simply emergency shelters, which are all over capacity, involvement to the private sector in emergency shelters. It's just deeply flawed public policy. Oh, it is, because it's all reactive. There's nothing proactive done with them. Um, but they're taking our money, investing it in whatever and saying, okay, we'll give you guys back another $500. But then guess what? You got to pay taxes on that. Like CERB, like that, that CERB was the, 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 the most brutalist. How so? Uh, well, because, oh yeah. Yeah. We, everybody needed money at that time because nobody was able to work. Nobody was able to do nothing. And yet, so you got a bit of money back from the government but you had to pay two-thirds of it back. Well, no, you had to pay taxes on the whatever amount you received. Not two-thirds. Yeah. Not two-thirds, but no. it's like the government is like, if you if you got a decent income, they're taking 40% out of you. Yeah, I don't know how many CERB recipients ended up in that tax bracket for the amount of time they were receiving the CERB. You know, the biggest problem there was the confusion about who's actually technically eligible for it. I mean, we're willing to claw back money on that front, but it doesn't look like we're very willing to deal with the wage subsidy, which was in excess of $100 billion that was widely abused. Yes, and and, and that's what I mean. This, our, the government that's in there in place now um, has no clue. They're just, they've, they've got a printing press and they're printing money. And they're just giving it out to wherever they want. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's the nature of the beast, which, you know, tax and spend, and use the word invest. I don't know how many government dollars go out the door in the form of a, an investment as opposed to simply a spend, and not to split hairs, but I think there's a difference in the two. Now, you can indeed invest in education to invest in someone's future, but a lot of government money is simply straight up a spend. Yes, and, 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 that's, and that's the problem. It's, you know, they, they make it sound so rosy. You know, that, that's, you know, like we're helping out, we're helping out all us Canadians and everything like that. But yet they can find tens of billions of dollars to go to another country, which I, you know, everybody needs help. I understand that. And we're one of the G7, but it just, it doesn't make sense that we can't help our own tax-free you know, because every dollar we give in, we, you know, they, they take out 40% of it. And it's just, it's just really frustrating. And that's why you got the black markets, you know, the drug trade and everything like that. It's because they don't give a flying F about anything. Yeah, I think they're all a little bit different conversations. Look, I mean, taxation is always going to be the way of life in this country. If people like it or low, this kind of doesn't matter because government doesn't have any of their own money. Uh, it's just all our money. And I'm not so sure we actually have a revenue problem as opposed to a distribution problem. 
I mean, even in this province, we have a, a budget around $9 billion to service 520,000 people. Like, there's a disconnect there. So it's how government sets their priorities, where they spend the money, how they spend the money, versus needing to rely on increasing taxes or increasing fees because they do and they make a lot of terrible decisions with their money. And we know it to be true, provincially, federally, at every level of government. Uh, Rob, last comment for you, sir. Go right ahead. Okay, no, I'm just, I just, I, again, it's with the, the, the money that they, the government uses that we give them is not being distributed properly. Um, they're giving it to some willy-nilly, you know, situations. Um, you know, this may work out, and it may work out down the road. And nine times out of ten, it does not work out. So that's all I'm going to say. Appreciate the time, Rob. Thanks for the call. Thanks. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Dave, where am I on the big scheme of things for breaks? Will I go? No, let's take a break. When we come back... We've talked about this issue in the past, and this regarding what is already a really strong enrollment for uh, students on the Port of Port Peninsula, or in and around Stephenville, pardon me, to take French immersion courses, early immersion. It's going by the wayside. Janice Murphy wants to talk about that right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Janice, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, so, Patty, I'm just calling in this morning. Just wanted to chat with you a little bit about the potential demise of the uh, French immersion program at Stephenville Primary School. Let's go. I mean, there's a, a bunch of different issues regarding the numbers and or percentages, which might see it go by the wayside, which really feels like grasping at straws to me. But where do we start, Janice? Um, so, you know, there's two major things for me. One is the fact that this time last year, um, Kinderstart parents were receiving an email um, about there was 27 people registered for kindergarten um, for 2022. And they were told at that time that they were going to need to have more than 27 to have a second unit, which is a second classroom opened. Um, and there was concern then about the fact that it was a lot of students in one classroom. But turn around to 2023, and now all of a sudden parents are getting a uh, letter from the school board, which is telling them that they need a minimum of 27 students just to run one class. Uh, so there's a lot of confusion there. Absolutely. So let's just throw some of the big numbers out there. 40% of the 50 incoming students want to take early French immersion for the 23-24 calendar school year. Correct. Then they go on to say the district policy, I believe, says something uh, along the lines of 27 for early French immersion. Currently, or at the, the time where the decision was made or the communication was made, is that it was at 18 students as opposed to 27. That number's grown. I think it's 21 or 22 at this moment in time. I think so, yeah. Okay, but to lean on 27 versus a percentage, I think is a little bit of a flawed look. I mean, we're talking about the popularity of. And not only that, we're talking about one of the parts of the province that has a real cultural attachment with the language. So there's lots of reasons why the folks in Marystown and Sacred Heart are concerned about their numbers. They've got an off year of incoming students for early French immersion, mm -hmm. very much unlike your community. So... I don't know. Where's, and where's the upside here? If the, they can say that at Stephenville Primary, we're unable to put the staffing in place to accommodate one unit or two units, there's an argument. But making the distinction between the numbers of students versus the percentage, 40% of the 50 incoming want to take French immersion, that sounds like it's strong enough, important enough, and relevant enough. 
Well, exactly. And I mean, that's my that's my take on this is I think 40 percent is a number that our school board and our provincial government should be looking at and taking pride in because Canada has two languages. Uh, you know, we're a bilingual country and the Bay St. George region is a bilingual region. So, you know, this is something to celebrate, not to, you know, not to deny. I couldn't agree more. Look, you know, there will be people that will make the argument, well, you can't be all things to all people. Government is going to be, it's going to be impossible to put that type of program in every single school, in every nook and cranny in the province. But we're talking about a really important, a popular and relevant program here. Add to it. There is well understood and documented research as to what French immersion can mean. It's not just about the potential to get a job with the federal government, as so many people boil it down to all the time. There's academic research out there, what it means for creative uh, and problem solving. There's a way it opens up that side of your brain very much akin to musical education. Just makes a big difference across the entire gamut of how you learn and the timeliness for how you learn. So I, I just because I guess I have a built-in bias here, oh, I'm married to a French girl, number one. Mm. My boys both went to early French immersion. I saw the benefits afforded to them. And I'd hate to see for students simply based on the population base that they come from, unable to take advantage of what my kids were able to simply because they live in the East End town. No, 100%. And so that's the way I'm looking at it. You know, technically, I'm not, um, you know, directly in affected this year. I've got um, a son who's in the grade two French immersion program right now, and I've got another son who I hope to enroll in 2026. But my biggest fear and the reason why I've come on board with this fight is because I don't think this is a one-time issue. And I do think, uh, you know, I think this is a forecast that if we don't see French immersion for the 2023 class, I don't think we'll see it again. You know, once you lose it, it's hard to envision getting it back. That's, I think, the worry Absolutely. You know, and not to make this about uh, Stephenville versus Marystown, but in Marystown, they have one down year, right? So even accommodations made to understand that there's low enrollment for one year and the next year it looks like they're right back to the numbers required. But if it goes away, it goes away maybe forever versus what's probably going to be a sustained interest of 40% of 50 incoming because I don't think the student enrollment numbers have changed drastically in Stephenville, have they? Uh, not that, I, well, no, not that I'm aware of. I know this year I've heard that enrollment is a little bit lower. Um, you know, I'm not 100% on that. You know, this is a lot of stuff, so I'm just kind of hearing through the grapevine. But, uh, you know, my anticipation for our community, when you look at all that's happening on the west coast of Newfoundland right now, if anything, one would hope that enrollment rates are going to go up over the next couple of years. Yeah, and then you look down the line, and of course, some of this is maybe not ex exactly on point, but when you forecast student population numbers, you look at a variety of things, including <coughs> economic opportunities. Mm -hmm. So just imagine if everything that's proposed out on the West Coast, and I don't know what's going to happen, I don't have a crystal ball, right. but if something happens with the airport, if something happens with some of the wind proposals, at some point, 40% of incoming will be 40% of 60, not 50, or 40% mm -hmm. of 70, which will absolutely constitute one or two units of EFI, as they refer to it. 100%. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, that I look at when I see some of the comments that are coming out from the school board right now is I feel like they have blinders on when they're looking at some of the issues. And I know a couple of years ago in Stephenville, they had, um, at the primary school, they had what they called um, a mixed class. I think it was grade one and grade two were in one class together. And I heard rave reviews on that from all of the parents who had children in there. So when they talk about the future of the program and that enrollment drops as, you know, students get higher up in grades, why aren't they looking at, you know, other possibilities rather than just, we're not going to do it again? 
when they refer to, and this is the district, they refer to the human resources required. So in two units, they need three teachers. Is that how I remember reading that story? I don't see that at all. Um, from what they said last year, they needed 27 students to have two units. So for 18 students, my understanding is that would only be one unit. Yeah, fair, fair enough. I guess if it's two units, three teachers, maybe one of those, the reading assistant or who knows, whatever the case may be. Uh, okay, so have they shown to people in the area that they're unable to uh, satisfy the resource issues? Because the proof would be in the pudding. If they had the job posted and, you know, during the summer season and leading into the opportunity for seniority to see teachers bumped, have they even displayed the fact that they can't get the resources? Because it's one thing to opine you can't versus actually show, well, we had the postings up, we couldn't get anybody, so it's going. Well, I haven't seen anything at all. And, and the thing to keep in mind here is that French Immersion doesn't have any, you know, additional resources. So you're talking about one teacher. And if a student needs a TLA assigned to them, it's not going to matter if that student's in French or English. That TLA is still going to be required. True. Absolutely right. Uh, I know that the member in the area has spoken to the issue. And now that he's thrown his hat in the ring for... Uh, to be the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, Newfoundland Labrador. You wonder where that conversation goes. But anything else you want to say about it this morning while we have you, Janice? No, that's just my hope. I mean, I, you know, Mr. Wakeham, I hope, you know, that his, his throwing the hat in the ring for the leadership doesn't take over from this. And I hope that he, you know, keeps his riding in mind. And I hope that he keeps our heritage in mind and puts this at the, you know, the top of his list of battles to fight for us. Uh, not to get too uh, into your own personal circumstances here, but do you have children who are about to enter school? Do you have children that have already gone through early French immersion? Yep, so I've got a son who's in grade two at Stephenville Primary right now in the French Immersion Program, and I have a two-year-old that I'm hoping is going to be able to go into the program in 2026. Do you speak French, Janice? I don't, and it's a big regret for me. Uh, yeah, mine is dodgy at best. Uh, uh, again, and this is not to, in an effort to say, look, French immersion is the only way forward, of course, because people will make their own personal decisions based on their circumstances, their mm -hmm. own child, what they know about their own child. But for the parents who don't speak French, that's the number one concern I heard amongst my social circles, is that, well, I don't know enough French beyond Bibliothèque and Guy Lafleur. How am I going to be able to help? When, in fact, it doesn't present the hurdle that people think it does. There's lots of ability for English first-speaking people, parents, to still be able to help at that grade level, and the resources come home to make it a bit easier. I was able to help with my boys and my French, as, as I said. Not great. How did you manage? Did you see it as a big hurdle and something that was insurmountable? Not at all, because the lovely thing about it is I'm learning French as, as my son is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, you have to recognize the work that's coming home is kindergarten work. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's at a very, very low level. So he, as he's learning, I'm learning. He's correcting me when I pronounce it wrong. Um, you know, we've had uh, teachers who, they, when they have poems or they have stories that they have to read at home, the teachers will record it and send it out to the parents by, e you know, email so that we can listen to it. So, as, if anything, the program has been a benefit to me and my husband just as much as it has been to my son. And having lived it, uh, the amount of, you know, you try to pepper them with a little bit of their ABCs in French and count to 10 and that kind of stuff, even mm -hmm. before September comes around. Correct. And then through the process of academic osmosis, the amount of French they pick up, even at kindergarten, is extraordinary. It really is. It's quite a sight to behold. Oh, 100%. And, you know, my son's super proud of the fact that he can speak French and his parents can't. You know, that's a, that's a beaming light for him. <laughs> One up for the young fella. I that's appreciate right. it, Janice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Chess, before the break there, Dave? Okay, let's see. There's a brand new tire on the side of the road. Where? Chess, you're on the air.
Uh, Penny, I was out for a walk this morning there about a half hour ago. Yeah. And I got over to the lights there on the corner of Major's Patents of Anger Drive by Tim Martin's. And there's a brand new big truck tire right on the front of the, the bus shelter there. Okay. Still there? I think, yeah. Because I think it was still there about five minutes ago because I just got back and we're still there, right? Hopefully someone who had it bounced out of the back of the rig because there's actually, yeah, yeah. there's a couple of tire stores right there, isn't there? Like, uh, what's it called? One Pit down Stop. there by Solby's and uh, down by uh, Torbay States and there's another one. I don't know where the other one is to, but this is a brand new tire. Uh, don't belong to a pickup. It belongs to uh, just like a, more like a, a dump truck or a, or a U-Haul truck or something like that, right? It's a huge tire, right? It's a huge tire, so obviously someone knows they've lost that. I know there's a tire service uh, place right there, Pit Lane, I think it's called, in that part of Torbay Road. Yeah, 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 yeah. I appreciate the time. Hopefully someone collects their big tire, Chess. Yeah, as we're up there around the corner, Tim Martin's and the bus shelter, we are turning the major's path. Appreciate it. Okay, yeah. Thanks a lot. See you, Chess. Yeah, bye. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's go ahead and take a break. First, we'll do our standard check-in with producer David. How are we doing on the telephone here this morning? Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the show is up to you. The topic, you're choosing. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. He's also the second person to officially put his name in the hat to be the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, first thing I want to do, of course, is address the uh, last caller. Uh, to your show about French immersion in Stephenville, Newfoundland, Labrador. <clears throat> and I will say uh, that I've been very proud and humbled to represent the district of Stephenville, port port in the House of Assembly, and I will continue to do that to the utmost of my ability. They will always be my priority. I, on the French immersion piece, I have had discussions with the Deputy Minister of Education, and I'm also now waiting for a call back from the Minister's office on this very important issue. You know, the numbers are there. The history is there. The culture is there. There is no reason that French immersion, especially in the Stephenville port port region, should not be offered every single year. Uh, it, does the conversation belong with the minister or the district, or does the minister have the ability simply to add, put that directive in place? Because the district would have a much better understanding, for instance, of allocation of resources, an opportunity to put the right people in the right places for early French immersion, for instance. Well, I think it comes down to the total teacher allocation. We know we have the French teachers there right now that are able to teach these programs. And it's a question of how that funding gets applied. And with the district or the English school district moving into the Department of Education, it's hard to understand exactly if they've moved in yet or if they haven't moved in. But that's that's right now the important issue is those kids and those parents that want to have their te- their kids learn French. And they have the numbers and and it needs to get dealt with. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm never uh, hesitant to admit my biases there, but I've seen it in action, and I've seen what it's meant, and I do think there's massive upside to it, and so we'll see where they go. You know, if it's going to be always a stickler on 27 uh, for one unit of French immersion or what have you, that's one thing, 
But you know, I think there's a realistic uh, way to look at it also with how popular it is amongst the, the parents and their kids about wanting to take early French immersion. Because 40% is nothing to uh, look down your nose at. That's a real big uptake. If you applied those same numbers, say, for instance, a French immersion school close by where I live at Vanier Elementary, then, man, you'd have to have four French immersion classrooms, not two. That's exactly right. And again, you know, I, I go back to the fact that you have people who want to do these programs. And when you have programs and you keep interrupting them, as you suggested, then it becomes extremely difficult because it, then you can only get, if, you, if you're not eligible for or can't get into French immersion this year, you have to wait till later on in the school years as you get later on in grades in order to take advantage of it. Yeah, late French immersion kicks in like grade seven, yeah. I believe. Right. And like just to use the specifics of Janice Murphy, who just called the show. She has a grade two student enrolled in it, has a two-year-old that might not even have the same opportunity as their sibling. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes no sense to me, especially when we want to promote our history and promote our culture. We know what happened to French-speaking people in the Stephenville-Port Port area years ago. They were forced to speak English. They were punished for speaking French. And, you know, there's that history and yes, it's fine to teach all kids about the culture and the history. But when you have people who want to have their kids learn French and enroll in French immersion, the government has a responsibility here to make sure that that happens. Fair enough. Let's move off to your, uh, your bid to be the next leader. I'm not trying to be unfair on this one, but did it take Mr. Brazel's announcement before you made your final decision? Because I think there was a tone around the party, and I've heard you say that you thought Mr. Brazel was doing a good job as interim leader. So did that finalize your decision when Mr. Brazel dropped out officially? No, Patty. As you know, uh, the launch that I did yesterday just doesn't happen overnight. I've been working on my decision and finalizing my decision and preparing for this for yesterday's launch date for a long time. But you're absolutely right. Dave Brazel has done an outstanding job building this party back up as interim leader. He's traveled throughout the entire province, setting up district associations and making sure that we're ready as a party for the next election. And he will continue to do that. And uh, so I have all the confidence in the world in David Brazel, and I believe that he will continue to do that. And I look forward uh, to becoming the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland Labrador. Part of the leadership bids, or even just uh, running an election, sloganeering becomes part of it, and that's not a good or a bad or an indifferent thing. It's just part of politics. You've come out with right leader, right time. So is it the right time for you, or is it the right time for the province? I believe it's the right time for both, to be perfectly honest with you. I believe I have the education, the experience, and the ability to bring people together and collaboration is so important if you're going to bring a team of people together because it's not just about the leader. It's about the team, as you know from your sports days. It's not the name on the back of the jersey. It's the name on the front of the jerseys that matter most, and that's what we have. We have a team now assembled for our, for our bid to become leader, but also I want to travel the province, and I want to find candidates who are willing to step up and put their names forward to become uh, uh, candidates in the next election. So there's a couple of things that you and I have discussed many times here in the past, and one of them is the sugar tax. 
Look, I, I get where people will simply refer to it as a cash grab without any real measurable outcomes, and we don't even know what the target would be to say whether or not it's worked, so that's one issue. Then, plus, it was uh, debated on the floor of the House of Assembly. The monies, and they guessed it would be around $9 million coming in the door to be invested in new programs, not uh, programs that are already in place, whether it be Kids Eat Smart or otherwise. So for some listening, though, Tony, sugar tax would be very much low-hanging fruit. Why do you put so much emphasis on it? Is it a larger big picture you're trying to point to? Well, because think, the sugar tax is, you know... Yeah. Yeah. I think it is a low-hanging fruit that's unnecessary for all the reasons you just talked about. I believe, you know, on the one hand, the minister says, oh, we're going to use the money uh, to fund other programs. And then on the other side, she'll come out and say, oh, but we hope we don't collect any money because we hope we change everybody. Nobody uh, buys sugar drinks. So for me, it's just low-hanging fruit, but it's part of a bigger picture. It's part of the fact that a government turns around and makes decisions that take more money out of people's pockets, unnecessary. And we've seen that. I mean, the government, uh, wasn't that long ago that we debated in the House of Assembly and they voted to increase the carbon tax. Now they're saying, oh, no, we, we can't increase the carbon tax anymore. I don't believe the carbon tax, yes, while it's a federal program, is a good tax. I think it needs to go because it's having a tremendous impact on Newfoundland and Labrador, not only with the prices we pay at the pumps or anything like that, but the fact that everything we bring or a lot of the things we bring into our province from food security and others come by travel, by truck or boat to get here. And there's additional costs added on, as we see when you go to the grocery store or go anywhere else. Okay, let's move on now to the healthcare issue because it's probably the biggest headline and probably the most important issue in the province if we're talking about people's access to primary care, absence of family doctors, what have you. You talk about looking at the people who populate the seats in the local schools, whether it be the med school, registered nurses, respiratory therapists up and down the line. How does that relationship look? Is it simply incumbent on the department to ensure that they are, you know, actively engaged with these students? Is it a formal retention or recruitment officer to be appointed? Is it a standalone office? Is it something simple as Dr. Megan Hayes' role being duplicated? How does that work? Because it sounds good in concept, but it can't be ad hoc because that never works. But that's exactly what's happened in the past. I mean, the four regional health authorities each were out competing for students across this province and trying to recruit them. But nobody was taking the leap of faith to say, let's actually go out and recruit people before they graduate. And let's not worry about the fact that, yeah, maybe we don't need somebody today because we have the position filled. But we know, we could forecast, there's going to be a vacancy factor. We always have a vacancy factor. So let's not get simply hung up on how many we need. Let's talk about and increase the supply by going out to the schools right now, there's a significant shortage of people working in the healthcare system in many different disciplines. And what I'm suggesting is, you know, it's fine to go off and recruit to bring in new people to work in our system. But right now, in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, there are a significant number of people enrolled in the medical professions going to school to become a doctor, to become a nurse to become a respiratory therapist. We need to be talking to those people right now and saying, have I got a deal for you? We want you, not 
we know you won't graduate for a couple of years, but I'm prepared right now to make you an offer a full-time job because I'm going to bet that we're going to need you when you graduate. I don't imagine there's a graduate of any of those schools that couldn't find meaningful employment here. But then there, then we get into the complexities. It's about training opportunities, the setting that you'll be working in, the location you'll be working in, the work-life balance, the amount of money you get paid. So, first question, would you continue to recruit across the country and around the world? Or, and secondly, what does it look like in your mind for addressing those complexities? Because I think far too often we simply say, well, we don't pay as much as they do in Halifax, consequently we're out of the game. When I think there's more to it than that for many healthcare professionals, not all, but for many. So, you know, paint me a picture about how you address the complexities because I see a lot of people simply say, if we don't pay the 20% uh, that uh, Halifax has promised in addition to salaries here for respiratory therapists right out of the game, when I think that oversimplifies it. Talk about, pick me a picture. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the picture is about working conditions. And look at what's happening in our healthcare system here, and I know it's happening in other places. But many nurses, for example, are graduating and preferring to go casual as opposed to full-time. What's driving that? And we know some of the issues of driving that is the being mandated back to work, the 22-hour shifts, those type of things. I think we have a real problem internally in our healthcare system, and we need to be in talking to the people who are delivering that problem because you're absolutely right. It's not all about the salary. It's about the rest of the components. For example, in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, it could be about childcare or daycare spaces. It, there's all, it's all related. It's not simply about how much of a salary am I going to make. You have to have all of the other services in place to surround that. But I think it starts with sitting down and having those frank discussions with people who are in our system right now. So when I talk to a nurse and ask, why are you going casual instead of taking a permanent full-time job. Those are discussions that need to be happening right now by the HR people involved in the system and getting a handle on that because it's no good for us to be out recruiting more and more people to come to a system that isn't working for the people in it now. I mean, I really think we need some federal leadership here, not just healthcare transfer dollars because provinces are fighting with each other and probably no one's getting any further ahead. Uh, Last one. So in the party system here in the country, it's always been quite the case study in provincial-federal relationships. You know, generally speaking, if the municipalities fight with the province, that's a good political victory. If the province is fighting with the federal government, it's a political victory. But the alignment to parties has always been fascinating to me. The NDP very likely have been in lockstep with their federal counterparts. The Liberals kind of the same thing. But it's not been the case for the PCs. I mean, look back to Holland on the Canadian flag and the relationship between then-Premier Williams and Prime Minister Harper. So where the party is going with the new leader, Mr. Poliev, how do you envision the relationship with the Federal Conservative Party Canada and the the Progressive Conservatives here if you're the leader? The way I've described it, Patty, is I'm here for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I will work with any federal leader who allows us to say, or takes the Prince position, that the primary beneficiary of the resources of Newfoundland and Labrador are the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, because that's the number one thing. And right now, the federal liberal government, in my opinion, are not uh, doing that for Newfoundland and Labrador. I don't believe that uh, there's any equality and equalization. 
I don't believe in a in a federal government that on the one hand imports 130,000 barrels of oil a day from foreign countries because the need is still there and at the same time talks about shutting down the offshore oil industry off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. But of course, the government doesn't import oil, though. So what would you do on that front? Because we hear Mr. Poliev talk about that as well. So what if we say, for instance, the Irvings? That's where people point. You know, versus importing Saudi Arabian oil, based on the contractual relationship they have with Saudi Aramco, are you saying that the feds should indeed ban imports and deal with domestic? Because that's sort of the boogeyman on the other end of it, where they talk about communism, when that's kind of a big part of what communism means. So is that your thought on this? No, what I'm suggesting is that there's a tra- there's a need for oil in Canada. We're importing that oil. So how do we make it so that the oil produced off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador okay. can be used to provide that need? Now, how that negotiation takes place, that need that will happen. But that should be the fundamental principle, is what I'm suggesting. Uh, fair, uh, fair enough. And, you know, curiously, regarding equalization, you know, we many people applauded the fact that we are haves uh, versus have-nots, when I'm not so sure that's worked out great for us to, be, uh, to begin with. And, again, you know, conservative premiers, Mr. Poliev and others, talk about the equalization formula, which I do think is not only complicated but needs work. But it was the Harper government and then cabinet ministers like Kenny sat in to put forward the formula that's currently in place. How does it have to change if you were, you know, lobbying on behalf of this province? Is it all about Quebec and hydro revenues, or is it simply a new formula required? Because the way it was constructed was constructed by the Conservatives that were still abiding by at this moment of time. Not to say that's good or bad, it's just the facts. I, I believe that it needs to be looked at, because I think one of the problems that we're seeing with the whole formula is the basis of how income or revenue that the provinces receive is included or not included in the formula. For example... The province of Quebec, which reaps uh, significant monies from our upper Churchill contract, uh, does not have to include that revenue in the formula, whereas our offshore oil revenue is included in the formula. Right. So that's the problem. I think there's a real problem with what, what revenue is in, what revenue is out, and that needs to be adjusted. Uh, last one. So and I know these are not necessarily entirely provincial matters. There's a federal jurisdi- jurisdictional overlap as well. But you mentioned Hydro-Quebec. What do you do if you had the big chair on the eighth floor about Muskrat? Like, what, well, what's the best play here? Because we can talk about examining what 2041 means and, you know, potential for other hydro and Atlantic Loop and up and down the line. But the noose that is Muskrat is there, and it's the top of the hydro chain. Where do we go? What do we do? Is this a matter of selling equity in it? Does it uh, have anything to do with 2041? What's your thoughts on how we proceed? I believe it actually is. I believe Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have paid more per capita than anyone else to make this country green. We are all upset, of course, with the cost overruns on Muskrat Falls. But Muskrat Falls wasn't just about eliminating uh, the, the need for Holyrood. It was about providing a green energy to Nova Scotia to get them off coal. So it was meant to be, that was meant to be part of it. The, the Prime Minister has talked about an Atlantic Loop and what that would include, whether Gull Island is built or 2041 in the new contract for the Upper Churchill. But I firmly believe that if a Prime Minister of the country and the current Liberal government can invest billions in a pipeline in Western Canada, surely they can take an equity stake in Muskrat Falls, not loan guarantees, an equity stake, so that it's part of a project that's good for Canada. And if you're going to have an Atlantic Loop, it's not Newfoundlanders and Labradorians should be bearing the full cost of that. 
Well, it's not me saying it. It's the government uh, saying it. And that's both the conservatives and the liberals. Federal loan guarantees were pretty much backstopped by saying it's a nation-building exercise. Right. Well, if that's the case, then simply putting your name on a, uh, a loan guarantee like my dad would if I'm buying my first car, that's only baby steps. That's only going halfway. You can't be half pregnant here. We're either building the nation or we're not. Uh, Tony, anything else before we say goodbye? Well, Patty, I just wanted to say that's exactly what we are. We are Newfoundland and Labrador. We want to be treated fairly and equitably. We don't mind sharing our resources, but as long as we are the principal beneficiary of those resources, that's what needs to happen. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. Take care, Tony. Bye-bye. Tony Wakem is the PC member for Stephenville Porter Party. We'd like to be the leader of the PC party of the province. The other gentleman who was in the equation at this moment in time is Lloyd Parrott. Of course, he's the PC member for Terra Nova. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the provincial dental plan. And then we're talking once again about access to food, food security, food insecurity, and the numbers of people losing food banks. Jody Williams from Bridges to Hope is there as well. Talk away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the manager at Bridges to Hope. That's Jody Williams. Morning, Jody. You're on the air. How you doing, That's about it, I suppose. How you doing? Good, man. Good. So let's start with the fact that, you know, I think it's awesome that you were able to strike a partnership with Music Canal to have a benefit concert. Got some good names off the top of my uh, mind. Uh, Alan Doyle, Rachel Cousins, Nick Earl, and the other name I can't remember at this moment. Kelly McMichael. Kelly McMichael. I mean, that's just awesome. But it does speak to, I think, Jody, what I call a failure in governance, that we have to have food banks and food bank managers like yourself to have to go to that length to try to cover what is the increase in usage. I mean, I think it's excellent that it's happening, but it's unbelievable that we have to go down that road. Yeah, well, I agree. Uh, I mean, I've met with uh, Minister Abbott and his uh, deputy minister before Christmas and kind of, you know, uh, basically saying that this is we're in a health crisis, you know, and that food is kind of a... Uh, a basic right is, uh, you know, I know we're not there, certainly, but, uh, you know, I, I, we're at this point now, it's, it's, you know, I consider it a health crisis. And so I did meet with them and express my concern, and I did reach out for help because generally uh, we don't get uh, support from the provincial government. What are you looking at uh, this year? If the uptick, the uptick we saw last year is exactly the same and or grows this year, what are you looking so far as a shortfall goes, whether it be dollars and cents or however you uh, put that forward? Okay, so uh, basically right now, based on um, my projections and also on projections of uh, a general, like uh, the umbrella of food banks in Canada, we're expecting about a 30% increase this year. And that was, of course, on top of the 40% increase last year. So uh, like last year, basically, you know, I went into, uh, I really went into a, a deficit because I refused to uh, not feed people. So I kind of went in and uh, basically went in debt to uh, maintain services. Um, so, you know, it's not really sustainable. Um, luckily, you know, like I said, this year we are, the difference is, um, you know, we're able to have events, which we haven't had since 2019. So based on like our normal donations, which is pretty much all online uh, the last couple of years, uh, did up my budget for next year. And even with those donations, we would still be $70,000 short based on this expected increase, at least $70,000 short. The other part of the story, and I've heard you say this before, 
is that when you look at the demographics, whether it be people who are actually working for a living, forced to turn to food banks, whether it be people on fixed income, but when you break it down to the two demographics where you've seen the biggest growth for children and seniors. Seniors, yeah. Just paint me a picture of what you see coming through the door and maybe some of the conversations you've had with new clients or patrons of your food bank. Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, we don't see, uh, so we, we bet about 280 children a month. So it's about 26% of our clients are under 15, say. Now, of course, uh, we don't necessarily see them here. Uh, we service them through their parents. Uh, we do see them in the summer a lot because we're not in school. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, uh, what breaks my heart a lot is uh, when I see the uh, you know, the drastic increase in seniors. And these are people that kind of worked their whole life. And here they are now at that point going to a food bank. And, I, you know, that, I find that to be really heartbreaking. I see kind of a, um, you know, a lack of dignity in their eyes when they're out there in the lineup. Um, you know, it's that's the two demographics, you know, that's what I find the most heartbreaking, that these are people that are kind of beginning their lives, ending their lives at a time when uh, food and nutrition is uh, certainly um, need to be optimized. And they're having to go to a food bank, which is, uh, you know, quite unfortunate. This might be a bit of an oversimplified question, but how does it complicate matters for your organization and your peers who work at other food banks when something that was also a stopgap or a backfill measure, like the community food helpline, going away by the end of March, all for very similar circumstances, the, the lack of long-term dedicated funding, but how does that complicate your world? Um, it doesn't really affect my world, per se. I mean, we've always... Um, We've always had our own clients, uh, you know, people calling the helpline where um, some of them were sent here, some of them were sent to other food banks, but certainly it doesn't affect us per se in a, in a, in a direct way. Um, not really, uh, you know, but it is a sign, of course, of, uh, you know, the need being, uh, I guess, way bigger than um, the support. When you speak with uh, various ministers, you know, I don't think it's unfair to paint it the way you do because it's simply not a matter of whether or not you can afford to go to the grocery store for three meals a day, seven days a week. This, no. without question, leads us down a health care concern. So I don't know, I say this all the time, is when we have something like a natural disaster, for yep. instance, governments mobilize immediately because it's a crisis. Mm-hmm. This is a crisis. I don't know how it could be couched as any other thing than a crisis. If the lack of family doctors is a crisis, so is this. The most expensive things in this country are a night in the hospital or a night in, the, in a prison. And if we can keep people out of either or, or both, we're way further ahead. So when you use the word crisis with the health, the health minister in particular, mm-hmm. how do they react? Um, I think they're, you know, uh, I think they're listening. <laughs> uh, I mean, they did ask me to come to them uh, and to express what I'm seeing. So I was invited to go see them. Uh, so that makes me hopeful. And I honestly can say I really felt like I was being heard. Um, so I guess we'll see what comes down the line. The problem is, of course, uh, and I said this to the government, you know, 
Newfoundland being the way it is, uh, geographically uh, so spaced out, et cetera, you know, there's not going to be a blanket solution. You know what I mean? Like here in Center City, where I am, you're not going to come up with the same solution for Carboneer for food security. Like there's not, that's, you know, um, so that's kind of the challenge in a way. You know, I kind of said, you know, basically, they said, well, can we do to help you? And I said, well, just give us, give me unencumbered money and trust me to do with it what I think is right. I mean, ultimately, that's the best way. You're going to empower me, give me the money, trust me, uh, as opposed to kind of applying for a grant under certain parameters, uh, you know, with expected outcomes. Uh, I mean, I have a lineup out there every day. There's, I don't need to prove that we're busy, you know what I mean? Well, no, obviously not. The proof's in the pudding. And, you know, you're not mm-hmm. only in the business of bringing in financial donations and or foodstuffs, mm-hmm. but also trying to add to the conversation about how reducing Absolutely. the numbers of people who are food insecure. So what does that look like? For me, I think there's a bunch of stuff. You know, backyard farming, homesteading, greenhouses, hydroponics, uh, community gardens. There are so many different areas where we can do better. You know, access is a concern. So if you're trying to add to the conversation about how we reduce the numbers of people who are relying on you and St. Vincent mm-hmm. de Paul, or the Community Food Sharing Association. How does that look? Well, if you're talking about, like, actually people having to not go to a food bank, uh, you know, the food problem we have is not a food problem, it's an income problem, uh, first of all. Um, but as far as food security goes, one of the things I did bring up with uh, Minister Abbott, uh, again, I, and I've said this before, you know, in France it's illegal to throw out food. Um, so I asked him to look at the legislation and maybe if there's something they can do to uh, implement something like that here. You know, like I, I guarantee you there's thousands and thousands of pounds of uh, protein uh as in like milk, yogurt, and uh, basically these kind of uh, perishable things are all getting thrown out, basically. And I know people that work at some of these stores, and they've told me, you know, they've seen pallets of fruit getting, say, thrown out because it was, you know, on the tractor trailer for a day longer than it's supposed to be. So that's one aspect uh, that can certainly help us. There's, you know, there's two things here, right? We have an immediate problem. And then the longer-term problem is going to increase the income because they ask, you know, and speak to the government, right? Right now we have a problem, like a major one. Uh, So there's kind of immediate steps to be taken, which is an influx of money to purchase food. You know, I spent $100,000 on food last year uh, compared to $17,000 I spent in 2019. Amazing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I also said to them, and it's philosophical, but, you know, um, until we kind of, if we if we if we decide it right now, food is a human basic right. Just we decide, okay, that's it. That we're just saying that's the thing, and uh, and then that will start to uh, influence decisions, right? It's going to start, you know, affecting laws. Going to start affecting all kinds of things. Um, so I, I think once we get, if we can get to that point, um, we can start to kind of make some real change. I think because to me, like you know, the food is a human right. I mean, to be able. I don't mean like you know. <laughs> like to the point, you know, you're going out and eating big fancy meals, but just, I mean, literally, like anyone should be able to have enough food to survive. I know there's seniors literally living off toast and tea right now. Yeah. Like I know, I heard it. They're living off toast and tea, skipping meals, you know, because like going to a food bank, you know, they don't have a car. So even if they want to come here, there's a lot of things to stop them. Now we do this, we do some deliveries through third party groups. But the need is so overwhelming that even that is quite challenging, right? 
We got a long way to go in 2023. Yeah, no kidding. Uh when we talk about more money in people's hands, and that's one of the surefire ways to Absolutely. deal with food insecurity, you know, the automatic pushback, Jody, I'm sure you will hear it as much as I do, yep. is we don't necessarily or we can't necessarily guarantee that that money is spent the way it's intended to be spent, whether it be the child tax benefit and or guaranteed basic income or whatever the case may be. Do you think that, you know, when we have that type of conversation, we should also include all of the harm reduction policies required to make sure the money is getting where it needs to be spent as opposed to simply more money in hand? Because I hate to be stereotypical on that front because I don't think it's fair, but I do think we need to address harm reduction at the same time as we do more money. You? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, this is a really complex issue, of course, uh, and this, the uh, solutions are not simple. But, um, you know, there's always going to be uh, – it's not so much – you know, there's a universal basic income, which is everyone's familiar with that term. There is another version of that that's not necessarily like everyone gets 20 grand, whether you work or not. Da, 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 da. It's more like the child – benefit in that like it's it changes each year you know if your income goes up uh so there is another uh, uh income with a way of doing that um so i'm thinking that's a better way to go about it as far as you know it getting some kind of um people backing it up i think you're always going to get a lot of kickback for just kind of like everyone gets 20 grand <laughs> whether you work or not uh, but i will tell you something man and the proof's in the pudding when the serb was out like I said, we went from seeing about 60 clients a day to some days seeing zero. Right. Maybe some days seeing five would be a busy day. That went on for like two months at least, and we were like, where did everyone go? And then I'm talking to other uh, community service providers, not only food. Everyone was like, where did everyone? Everyone just disappeared, right? You know, because when you don't have money, your mental health affected, Right. You know, obviously, you're probably going to be depressed. Now, all of a sudden, you have money. Maybe it's going to alleviate that a little bit, and you don't need to avail of so many social services. So there's a cascading effect there. Absolutely. I mean, money, the ruination of, of all. And, I mean, just take it a step further. How many people's relationships are dissolved because of money-related matters, let alone the, how much food you can put on the table, let alone how you can treat your children and Nan and Pop and everybody else? Uh, Jody, appreciate the time. We're going to keep plugging the benefit concerts, so hopefully appreciate we can bring that. in a bunch of monies. And always good to have you on. Keep up the good work. All right, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Jody Williams, manager down at Bridges at Hope. Uh, Can Eldred hold during the break? Yeah, we want to do that. Eldred wants to reply for what he heard from Tony Wakem regarding Muscat Falls. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Eldred, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, Mr. Wakem never answered my question. He's uh, like a fellow boy in the car and get someone else to pay for it. And that's what he's talking about, get the federal government to pay for it. The federal government is after putting a fortune into that and it's still not working. Well, not really. They haven't really put a fortune in. What they've allowed us to do is borrow on their credit rating, which comes with a savings for us. But, I mean, I think I understand his point with the feds taking an equity stake because when the federal government justified to the rest of the country the federal loan guarantees, they said it was pretty much a nation-building exercise. A lot of the power generated at Muskrat would go to Nova Scotia to help them get off coal-fired generation. So I get his point. Where do you think the answer lies, Eldred, if it's not that? Uh, I really don't know. but uh, Someone is going to have to pay for it, and I guess it's going to be the taxpayer. Yeah, but at this moment in time, 
it's only the Newfoundland and Labrador taxpayer, when in fact there's a big profit going to be enjoyed by Nova Scotia Power and Amera and a break for their customers and a move away from coal-fired, and it's going to be paid for by me. I think that's the point that others try to make about the Fed's involvement. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> what hurts the most, I supported Danny Williams when he ran for Premier, and when he came up with this idea about Mossrat Falls, and he resigned right after. I said, this is not a good deal. Because if it was, he would have stayed there and got the praise for it. Well, fair enough. Because, <laughs> I mean, I think the origins of the project are curious, if that's the right word. It really felt like the direction was, I want to develop Muskrat Falls, figure it out. As opposed to the other way around, where folks in the hydro business, who know about hydro, comes to the government and say, we have a plan. Uh, but we didn't do that. We were told, make a plan. And, of course, yeah. the plan they came up with certainly isn't working the way it was intended to. No, that's right. Yeah. It's... Petty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it, Eldred. Thank you, sir. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, I mean, the solutions, I don't necessarily know 100% what they are. But, you know, when someone makes the comparison to the federal government buying a pipeline from Alberta to Tidewater on the Pacific Coast because it's nation-building and it's maximizing opportunities. I don't think that's a whole lot different than what people suggest regarding what could happen with Muskrat. Not to say it will. I mean, maybe nothing's going to happen. But it's not a bad argument because think about it. Here we are in the extreme east of the country, and your federal tax dollar and mine is absolutely building a pipeline. We are. People can talk about, well, it was the feds that derailed it in the first place or whatever. End result is my federal tax dollar and yours and everybody's in the country is developing and building that pipeline. The end of the, gain, end of the day price tag on it is going to very likely be much more than what Muscat costs. It, it is. And the beneficiaries, they're not this far east unless we're talking about folks who might be working on the construction phase of the pipeline, unless we're talking about folks who do the long-distance commute to, for instance, work, work in Fort McMurray and the surrounding oil sands as their full-time job. I get that, but in the basics of it all, the whole country's paying for it. So if I'm going to offer a distinct benefit to the province of Nova Scotia regarding Muskrat, then isn't there a similar argument to be made? And it's not us making it, because remember, the Feds said this stuff out loud themselves. So when they had to, whether it be Prime Minister Stephen Harper and the initial $5 billion federal loan guarantee, which came with this quasi-independent engineer and all the rest of it and a bunch of caveats about who has to pay the final bill, they basically said, well, it's going to help the country. Then when the federal liberals extended that uh, loan guarantee all the way to, I think we stand at about $8.9 billion of the debt is associated with federal loan guarantee, which means we borrow the money at the federal levels of interest, which does provide a savings. Last number I saw was approaching $1.5 billion, uh, maybe over the course of the 57 years of the loan itself. So I don't think that argument is completely out to lunch. Is there, or are there other ways? Because some people will say, you know, it's an opportunity to walk away. I don't know how that works because TD, Goldman Sachs, the lenders, they're going to want their money come hell or high water, and they're going to get their money. So how do we also potentially woo more industry here with hydropower. How do we incorporate any of the wind proposals that are currently being evaluated by the province to contribute to our obligations to Nova Scotia? I mean, there's just a lot of different things here at play, 
and I don't think any of them are simple. And the one issue that I think we don't even consider because we haven't seen the report and the recommendations is what does 2041 really mean? For some, it's the golden egg. It's the end of our problems. When the people who I do trust and I think have a good grip on the subject, they think it's far less than that. I think the work done by that 2041 commission is going to paint a very clear picture. And I know it's only 2023, but you and I both know before we blink an eye, it'll be 2041. Or be so close to it that we're going to have to understand what it means. And what that's going to mean for other things, which I think are all directly or indirectly related. Muskrat, the Atlantic Loop, our partnership with the Mera, uh, the Upper Churchill, and don't, and God forbid, we actually utter these two words, and Gull Island. I mean, obviously, the business model put forward where I'm the only payer. The Newfoundland Labrador rate payer, we are the folks on the hook in full. Now, that would include commercial, industrial, and, and residential uh, uses of hydropower, but they all have some relationship. And you know they do. If there's conversations ongoing between the feds, the province of Quebec, Hydro-Quebec, this government here in our province, then those things, they're not left out to be uh, operating in silos with no relationship to each other. So I'd be curious to see where that stuff goes. All right, uh, we are on the Twitter box or VOCM Open Line. References to some of the conversations we had regarding food insecurity and the numbers of people coming through the doors, for instance, at Bridges of Hope. And I would imagine the picture that Jody Williams, the manager at Bridges of Hope, paints is very, very similar to food banks right across the province, specifically regard, regarding the demographics and the percentage of uptick in people relying on the food bank. And to know that, the se that seniors and children make up a big percentage of the new users or patrons or clients at a food bank is extremely troubling. So he also went on to say they had to do everything virtually since, uh, I guess, 2020, when you know what reared its head. Now they've changed their tune a little bit, whether it be with the benefit concert, the ability to accept food donations. So fellow looking for information, which I will send along. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.